0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Houseless Podcast. Yes, it's my weekly podcast, The Houseless. I just marked your name off. My name is Peter Agostin, the host and producer of the show. Thank you very much. I record these mostly all in Brooklyn, New York, but you know what? Next week I'm going to be in Budapest, Hungary for two weeks, so I'm hoping to broadcast a couple of episodes from there so wish me luck i have some great ideas on deck and i will be reporting back next week from budapest each and every episode of the house list is edited and engineered by my man cj stewart and this is no different we have a really great episode number 36 today with none other than dj jonathan tobin and this very special episode of the house list is brought to you by House of Marley. Yes, the House List and House of Marley and the all new stirred up turntable by House of Marley. I've seen this turntable. It's beautiful. It sounds amazing and we are giving one away on this episode of the Houseless podcast. Yes, through June first, the House List and House of Marley have joined forces to give away one of House of Marley's brand new stirred up turntables to a lucky Listener, listen, I've been collecting records for over 25 years, that's no joke. Me, Peter Agostin, aka Thanksgiving Brown. So, turntables, headphones, speakers all that's essential to me. And a lot of these episodes I've recorded and edited with House of Marley headphones. So, when we had the opportunity to give away one of these brand new turntables uh to one lucky listener here of the houseless podcast i jumped up the opportunity um, it's a super super cool piece of machinery uh, you can one look at houseofmarleycom turntable and there's a lot more of some great videos there but it's made of solid bamboo plinth recyclable aluminum alloy platter it's sustainably crafted, and it comes with um, an Audio-Technica cartridge. It's a built-in preamp, uh, USB, and a headphone jack. And if you are anything like my guests on today's podcast, DJ Jonathan Tobin, then you collect 45s, so you play 45s. So this plays 45s and uh, LPs, so 33 and 45. Yes, check it out, y'all. I'm giving away this uh, stirred-up turntable. You have until June 1st to write me at the House List Podcast at gmail. And in the title, write Stir It Up. And at one uh, listener at random, whoever writes me um, will be picked at random. And then House of Marley will ship you a brand new Stir It Up turntable. Yes. So r- again, the Stir It Up turntable. Create a classic sound that reveals the true depth of your favorite music. This streamlined design features natural bamboo, uh, a built-in preamp that's compatible with any of your speakers, especially any house of Marley product speaker that you might have. And I'm telling you, I use these products, uh, and they're amazing. They sound great. Um, I got a laptop that doesn't have a speaker. So I plug in the, the auxiliary speaker all the time when I'm watching movies. my lady and they're amazing and this turntable is absolutely no exception it's really dope it's really sleek and cool so either check uh them out on instagram at house of marley or go to thehouseofmarley.com backslash turntable to see some videos and some pictures actually of the stirred up turntable which we're giving away on this episode episode number 36 write me at the houseless podcast at gmail when you're done tuning in to this epic conversation with me and jonathan tobin and in the title line stir it up and uh give me your name and then we'll pick it at uh at random and then one lucky winner by next month is going to get this house of marley stir it up turntable all right y'all so let me tell you a little bit more about my guest dj jonathan tobin So originally he's from Texas. He's lived in New York for a long time. Many know him from New York Night Train. Many know him from the Soul Clap DJ parties. But he's had like, you know, 10, 20 at least uh, different residencies all throughout New York City. You can catch him uh, in August at the Pickathon Festival in Happy Valley, Oregon. And I know that's going to be great. I've been there before and I know Jonathan is perfect for that too. He's in New York Weekly, you can find him, and we talk a lot about uh, regional soul labels. We talk about Texas music in Texas, punk, psych, hardcore scene, and just the New York scene and how it's evolved since he got here. Um, how he sort of fell into his career, and um, it was incredible and a very personal conversation because. Uh, as some of you may know, you know, Jonathan went through a very traumatic uh, accident where he was struck by a car in while sleeping in a hotel room on tour in Portland, Oregon, uh, some years ago. And for some strange reason, uh, I got the first call from the EMT when they arrived on the scene. I don't know why or how. And we chat about it a little bit at the end of the episode. So it's something... We have a lot of strange things in common, and uh, I think it was really great that we finally were able to have a conversation, talk about music and life and records. And um, this is definitely uh, one for the books and definitely one for music fans and collectors out there. So, without any further ado, let's get into my conversation with Jonathan Tubin, and I'll catch you guys on the outro. Yeah, so now when it comes to like the stuff you do, because now you've been doing these parties that are based around forty-five, that come out both on these like really famous labels as well as uh, obviously small regional independent stuff, and you know the fifties and the sixties, the the seven-inch, the forty-five was like the medium. I mean, this is like jukebox culture is at a high in America and possibly abroad. So I'm just trying to get a sense too, because perhaps
1: the height of our popular music, recorded music sure. as
0: well. That's interesting. Yeah, that could. That, I get that's, arguable for sure. Yeah, I mean obviously because there's so many there's hundreds of labels that are producing that stuff, right?
1: Well, I think there were some interesting things. Uh, first of all, I mean I do think the aesthetics of the time were overall pretty great. I think a lot of people yeah. like, uh, you know post-war design for architecture for automobiles for lots of things because right. there was a certain elegance and modernity mixed with stuff that we now you know still attached
0: enough to the old world Yeah. So,
1: where uh, you know I guess it had meaning
0: <laughs> yeah, and it was durable uh, well made yeah. Um, yeah I mean furniture of that era clothing yeah. yeah automobiles and architecture too but you look at those record labels you look at the The layout, mostly all laid out by hand, too.
1: No, it's great. And the the thing is that, you know, a lot of interesting development happened. You know, for instance, in World War II, they were listening and wondering how, you know, these German orchestras were playing in the middle of the night. And later on, Mm. when they came in to Berlin, they were like, oh, magnetic tape. Like, they didn't have that. And Bing Crosby got one of the machines. Really? Yeah, and gave it to Les Paul. Like, figure this out or whatever. You know, so it really... You know, after right after that, a lot of things started going on. Like records started sounding a little better, and uh, but it wasn't yet the point. I mean, you know, Les Paul was already multi-tracking, or, you right. know, at the beginning of the, you know, 1949, you had the 45 and the 33 right. come out, which also sort of, in a way, democratized things because um, basically, when you say an album, an album used to be literally a book of 78s
0: right right and so like
1: one of the companies had the 45 which you put on a spindle and they go all like that and then you flip yeah. it over to your side too and then one of the companies had a 33 where instead of it being stacked up it was it, it's as we know it now it's spread yeah, out right. and uh
0: did and you we, ever get into 78s collecting 78s? Oh, i love them
1: i just don't mess with them much because um they don't travel well they're very breakable and they sound amazing like honestly if you want to hear for instance, Howlin' and Wolf. Like, if you haven't heard "Moaning at Midnight on seventy eight, you haven't heard it yet, man. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing. Some of the things it's just you know, sorta of how the forty five I feel is the best format for a lot of the you know, definitely for the sixties music and a lot right. of the later fifties music I feel for you know, early to late fifties, like rock and roll and blues kind of stuff. You know, if you you got know, like a, a good seventy eight from 1955 is about the height of technology for what it is. And uh yeah. super explosive. But anyway, what I was going to say is that the, the, the one thing that was unusual about it was that um, there was a monopoly in the music industry uh, before World War II, pretty much. And there's a lot of... There's a million things you can talk about. One of them would be, I guess, um, ASCAP went on strike in the 40s because they weren't paying them for radio music. So BMI was... Was a thing. And that and that basically included a lot of hillbilly artists, a lot of black artists, stuff like that, that ASCAP was kind of snobby and didn't want to touch. ASCAP was started by Irving Berlin and yeah. all the songwriting establishment in the 1910s. So when those guys went on strike, the radio station was like, well, we'll just get music from somewhere else. Yeah. And then at the end of the war, you know, basically ASCAP and the major label Monopoly and all that, they went back to doing exactly what they were doing before the war. So... Basically, it allowed all the people that they overlooked, which are mostly, I guess, poor
0: people. Sure, you know. sure. Uh, and people that are outside in New York City as well, right? Because it's like post Tin Pan well, Alley? Even
1: in New York, though, New York always had these sort of shady things. Like Tin Pan right. Alley kind of wound up in the Brill Building, and they had their own things. But all over New York and New Jersey, you had all these little tiny industries. And one of the things I think that uh, you can't ignore is that basically during World War II, you know, there was this Great Migration, I mean, the original Great Migration before that, but World War II, all these people started coming in to work in factories, whether it be in Chicago and Detroit, or Houston and Los Angeles, or even somewhere like, I don't know, Beaumont, Texas, or, yeah. you know, Pensacola, Beaumont. like all over, people were coming to work at these places, and a lot of them were the kind of people that were not allowed in the, in the workplace because different things, like women, minorities, so they were all working. They all had uh, disposable income. The war made it where we didn't really have a war on our soil, so it depressed everybody else. It greatly benefited us. Mm-hmm. So our factories were pumping, and even after the war, I mean, we were selling the rest of the world all of our goods, yeah. you know? So these people were all working and, um, and had disposable income, and a lot of them were new to the city. So someone like, I guess a great example would be Muddy Waters. He came from Mississippi, came to Chicago, Chicago they were putting out all this other music but immediately when they put out a Muddy Waters record everyone bought it because there was this diaspora from Mississippi living there and they wanted right. to hear the music of Mississippi but obviously Muddy Waters is now in Chicago and so were they so it wasn't exactly like it was Mississippi blues but it was electrified it was different yeah and so basically like the Chess Brothers found a whole new market with that and they realized you know we if we can sell all these we can keep these pumping out and they were able to make a profit if they sold even 10 years down the line 60,000 Helen Wolf records that was a profit whereas in the bigger music industry that wouldn't be considered much of a success right right so they they basically build these artists and sell small quantities over time and they would the 45 was sort of like the demo tape was in the 80s like everyone you could take a chance putting one out by a smaller artist if you're a regional label, but if you're a local label or you're a guy that decides to become a local label, you could technically just, for very little money, put it out and you could really just hand it to a DJ. And because radio programming in the 50s was still localized, sure, uh, you could just hand it to the guy. Top 40 started coming in the late 50s, which changed a lot of uh, the way that people dealt with things. And then over time... You know, the DJs became less important and it became pre-programmed, um, particularly by like, you know, I'd say by 1970 or so, you had, you know, way fewer indie labels. You had way fewer radio stations where DJs were picking their own tracks. You did have right. less payola or whatever. And the payola scandal at the end of the 50s was a way to basically, for ASCAP and the bigger labels, you know, to give the finger to all these little guys that were doing stuff because Honestly, while those guys were sleeping and putting out Sing Along with Mitch and, Uh you know, trying to revive Andrew's sisters or doing whatever major labels were doing back then, the little guys were making a lot of money. And like you look at 1955, you had had Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley on Chess having, you know, really, really big hits. You had Elvis, you know, that's the year that he really started blowing up his son. You had Little Richard. So all of a sudden, all these people... You know, this rock and roll was coming, and the major labels totally slipped on it. The entire industry slept on it. And during that point, what they hadn't realized is, much like what I grew up with in the 80s and 90s, all these independent forms of distribution were set up. So you already had all these distributors. You had these mom-and-pop stores. You had the radio stations. Right. You had this whole, you know, system for these little subcultures. And also, black radio was just starting out country radio as we know it was starting out like a lot of these things that people weren't doing were becoming a standard in every city and what was happening that was also changing the world was these white kids were sitting at home and uh they were able to eavesdrop on black culture through radio yeah and absorb all of that yeah so all these elvises were sitting around listening (laughs) to this music go whoa and and uh so it, it created a a really democratic marketplace and uh it really, I think you know by the 1956 or so when they bought Elvis's contract, when they were getting Pat Boone to do Little Richard covers, <laughs> when the major labels were they they were doing everything they could to destroy these networks, but they were so strong already, and like the Chitlin' Circuit and the and these reviews and theaters, everything was already really tight. So it took it took them many many years. The Fayola scandal helped them out a lot, but it took them years to wipe all this away. So. Basically when you're buying a record from a little label in 1963 even, it's still a label that has a chance, even if it's from some small town, has a chance in its town. Which by the way, if you put out a little record in your town, a band that plays at dancers and it plays on the radio, you would make a profit just from that. Sure. And then if that became a regional hit and they started playing it in the region, national hit, all that was possible. So it really inspired people to create more and to be independent business people and it inspired a lot of artists It empowered a lot of artists to just get out there and
0: do it what do you think would be like a really a great example of a small town or small city um record that then broke out on like a regional uh level that then became like a national or international it started as an indie. I mean, there's obviously a lot. Well, you of know, albums. I was
1: just thinking one the other day. I, I got the Wayne Cochran original version of "Last Kiss." Okay. You know that murder song. Yeah. And uh, but there was there's a Texas one, and I can't remember what the band is like. Somebody and Frank, somebody in the Cavaliers. We don't even remember the name of this guy, even though people still listen to his version when they're not hearing Pearl Jam's version or whatever. You know. Uh-huh. And uh, uh-huh. man you know it was some little local texas small town label and it broke out and it went and, 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 it, and it, it's a great story i was thinking about because i mean wayne cochran wasn't a known guy either and he had this small you know i think it was from georgia or northern florida i think it was georgia record that no one bought right some guy in texas found it they covered it in the small town and it became a regional hit and became a national hit but honestly almost you know almost everything that wasn't you know from a larger label back then was the product of you know something like the Titan up I was talking to Archie Bell the other day about about it's so weird like he nice he, he was just this guy that sang this track with this band the TSU Tornados who was a Houston local band on a very small Houston label and he yeah. sang the song the song picked up in Houston Atlantic picked it up the next year for a national release cuz it did so well in Houston and it's still People still play the Titan up every day all over the world, you know. Yeah, uh, I feel in a lot of ways I was thinking that the music industry was almost becoming that now, uh, when hmm. things became digital for the first time. Because right. I was actually inspired in in the uh, aughts, because I really believed that uh, the record industry was dying, and it gave people an opportunity to create on and distribute on a on a more even level right that's true and yeah. what you did see like i guess today's version of it would be a viral youtube video
0: yeah yeah youtube would be an interesting example of that like what came out of the death of like the cd and then like we have youtube soundcloud bandcamp too or yeah all their own different kind but of but you
1: know definitely I, I always think that so many of the, these things have become really big hits like there yeah. was what, that well, side that sigh song from like south korea though yeah um
0: Gangnam Style? Yeah, yeah,
1: Gangnam Style. Like, you know, that video was such a great video, and everyone just shared it because it was so right. funny watching them do this dance. But the song and the video are kind of the same thing now. And, and, and it really, I mean, right. I remember the, the president referencing Gangnam Style. Yeah. For things to become, could, could you see something like that happening in, I don't know, the 80s where Reagan, like something, or, you know, Bush Sr., right. or even, you know, W, like, see something reaching them from some underground sort of no form.
0: no they would seem impervious to that at
2: that
1: point well not like that the the system was set up against them i think right. it's to me i mean part of why i got interested in this is when i grew up for instance punk music they decided the united states wasn't worth selling right so you know
0: Well, what year are you talking about? Well, I'm basically
1: after '78. Okay. What happened is in the UK they continued to have major label punk, and someone like Sam '69 or UK Subs or whatever would have actual hits on the English radio. Yeah. But in America, you know, they pretty much tried, you know, with the Ramones. They tried a little bit with the Sex Pistols. These things, even the Clash at that point, and they they just really weren't. You know, nobody was really doing that well, and so they just gave up on it. So basically, you had. I mean, it always goes back to Black Flag. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Sure. You, you You had, a, you had like them it. setting up this touring circuit.
2: Yeah.
1: And along with it, this uh, record distribution circuit. You know, and then right. with it, it's so funny to think that Minor Threat, you know, and for them, Teen Idols, I mean, that's, that's Discord Records. You know, they the, yeah, the guys put out their own things. The Dead Kennedys were alternative tentacles, yeah. you know? Touch and Go is Corey from the Necros and Tesco V from the Meat Man when it started. Like, all right. these... All these labels were that I grew up listening to were all things that these bands that had no voice, you know, New Alliance was the Minutemen even though stepped up to SST or whatever, you know, like like everyone had their own label and, uh, and having that label allowed them to enter this form of distribution, which again, these stores, these record labels, the college radio, the zines, all these things that I grew up with created a world that was so big that by the time Nirvana happened, which you could equate with like maybe that year with Elvis in 56 or something. Sure. You know, where suddenly the big labels realize they've been asleep the whole time and there's money and all this stuff. And there's this mad grab for all these things. And it it took them a while to kill culture. They didn't kill it
0: immediately, but they did. Well, it takes them a while to wake up and then it takes them a while to kill it. And then by the time Mm -hmm. either one of those things happen, something else now is coming up I think you know well
1: also monopoly capitalism is the one thing that yeah. really gets in the way of, of the real good capitalism because the real capitalism is what we see in these local markets now like I, it is great that we're drinking this Brooklyn beer right now and that we you know in the past you couldn't go into the local deli and get anything local like right. when i grew up sure you know so there there's a lot of good sure. things about it but i do feel that um, you know one thing that's great about those little systems of distribution that I was talking about uh, is that the records that you hear are, particularly in that era, very regionalized. Just like they yeah. were in the '80s. Like if you read your maximum rock and roll scene reports growing up, you know, <laughs> you you would have it mapped out for you either way. But you know that the bands in Texas, for instance, you know, we all had a different sound than that's the bands sure. living in the Lower East Side or whatever. And and uh, today, a band from Texas and a band from Brooklyn. You probably couldn't tell the difference yeah that's uh that's and, a very interesting point And it's it's true. the same thing started happening with uh the sort of soul music and all that stuff is right. that there were these regional sounds that were happening, and over time they just became the sort of
2: what, more national, national yeah. sound yeah, yeah or so, international, so, so what
0: were your bands in Texas then growing like in say high school like because you were well, straight it was straight punk rock or was it a no, no 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 like, more like a hardcore like punk rock well, group? I went. When I
1: started going to C bands, all there was pretty much was hardcore if you didn't accept like I met a, I ran into a guy the other day uh by the way this guy's so cool his name's David Dove and he has something called hmm. a nameless sound in Houston
0: okay
1: and they fly in all up uh, experimental musicians from all over and they they teach kids and they do a show in Houston where they normally wouldn't do it so sure. anything from New York loft musicians to uh you know Pauline Olivares was always there and that when nice. she died like she was a big proponent but like So this guy, I met him in line at a Butthole Surfers concert in 1987.
2: Okay.
1: And definitely, even by that point, I mean, I was 15 or so, but, you know, like, kids like me were looking for a way to get past hardcore because hardcore had become, you know, like they had bands called Anything With Three Initials or whatever, because seriously, people, it was such a formulaic kind of thing that seemed kind of dumb by that point for people like us and someone like Butthole Surfers or whatever sonic youth or or one of those kind of i don't know pussy galore one of these bands from the later 80s that seemed like they were doing something different yeah yeah. and and to be honest it seemed noisier and weirder because a lot of the hardcore was starting to sound like i don't know not that different than what i don't know metal or whatever you know what i mean
0: sure i absolutely know what you mean yeah i mean it get yeah when you start Recognizing there's a formula then like it gets kind of boring. but the
1: late 80s kind of got left out in history too because it was one of those periods that you know people didn't record well a lot of that stuff sounds right. cheesy Right. it it didn't really a lot of the greatness of the those people that were of the hardcore scene and then rebelling against it didn't come out well so most of my bands were contrarian punk bands you know like we're and in Texas honestly everyone the one regional thing I think that we definitely had is that our biggest regional band was the Butthole Surfers yeah so, you know, the way that, I don't know, like Agnostic Front or someone would be here or maybe like, I don't know, I guess Minor Threat was already done by then, but maybe like, I don't know, Fugazi up in uh, yeah. DC or something. You know, we yeah. had the Butthole Surfers, yeah you know, and so, nice. you know, we had Scratch Acid, we had, yeah, we, there was a lot acid. of hardcore bands in Texas that were great too. Like, for instance, you know, I definitely saw DRI a couple times around uh, that, that cool. point too or whatever, but... And they were also a very weird band in their own way for, you know, if you think about it, like Violent Pacification or, you know, the Dirty Rodney, the little 40-second songs, like they weren't a generic band. right? But but Texas always, I think the one thing is Texas has a, um, you know, throughout history, like a rugged individualism and a contrarianism.
0: Yeah. And and people there like to test the water. Well, like, I mean, Rocky Erickson would be probably a good example of that too, although that's, uh, from one generation mm. maybe removed, right? Would you say?
1: Well, in a sense, maybe more Tommy Hall. I mean Rocky Erickson I think in a way was just this great blend of all the rock and roll things that happened all to that point. Yeah. You listen to his first band, The Spades, you know, they had a you know that original version of uh, You're gonna miss me and the uh Yes. And know what was the other one? The uh was it Tried to Hide? I can't remember. But the that single, you know, he already has this little Richard voice mm-hmm. that's amazing. And he already you can hear that you know, they just picked up all the best things from the British invasion and the rock and roll, before, the frat rock before it, and then I think Tommy Hall is the guy that brought the psychedelic drugs, the weird ideas that jug, and then you know. Did you so, see
0: them play?
2: Like, uh, the
1: Elevators? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I've seen the Rocky many times, yeah. but uh, I think the only gig they did, the proper Elevator gig, was at Psych Fest last year. Oh, wow. Yeah, but uh, my whole youth, they, you know, obviously Rocky wasn't even playing. They yeah, to that was his, song. like,
0: time he dark theory. On,
1: on the wrong medicine. Right. Like, but we all, we all I mean my stepdad gave me the first two Elevators albums. That's how I found out who they were. Like, nice. I was listening to Jimi Hendrix and the Doors and all stuff in middle school and he's like, you should hear this, it's better or whatever. Wow. <laughs> he was right. Yeah. Way better. But, uh. That's the, awesome. But the thing about it is, yeah, there definitely is a contrarian, uh, individualist spirit to the elevators that when you hear the elevators you're clearly not hearing some other nuggets band or some other generic garage band the elevators are clearly the elevators and the elevators definitely were an inspiration for generations of counterculture music in texas even by the time i was around old guys still told you about them I remember playing a gig once and the Shiva's headband guys came and liked it or what, he went, whoa, who's that? Or like, you know, you always hear about bubble puppy dudes and... I don't know, know about, I don't know anything about Or before. by, you know, Red Crayola, like the... Uh, yeah. The mother of... Uh, <laughs> the mother of Mayo, Hazel, taught with my mom. Hmm,
0: really? So I, I what,
1: grew up kind of knowing about who they were in a public school, yeah. And huh. you know, so... What town were you from? In Texas? Houston. Oh, okay, yeah. Right. And then uh, I moved to Austin in my teens, and uh, so yeah, it, it, you, you know, it, that legacy was always there of weirdness. And then you think of things like, of course, like the elevators when they went to San Francisco in '66. Right. Like, and you, you hear how bad like the Dead and Jefferson Airplane and Great Sight, all those bands were back. Then. And no offense to anyone that likes that stuff, but those bands were in you no know, 13th floor elevators. You know, <laughs> Big Brother Holding Company, who by the way, Janice also. Texan. And then, you know, oh, right. after yeah. the elevators visited, you know, they definitely helped give, you know, they, they didn't get to go back to San Francisco because of legal problems for the Summer of Love. They were already right. gone by the time all those people but were using their ideas. Yeah, but their yeah.
0: influence was kind of remained, you're saying. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Apparently everybody, you know, I and mean, these people were playing basically, I mean, so hard to imagine all these people coming out of like the folk scene. Right. Like it, you'd always think they would have come out of like more of a garage or frat rock or rhythm and blues. Like they were in some band like the But These guys all came out of folk.
0: Yeah, playing acoustic guitars. On the something. west coast. Yeah, so it's sort of like um, you know what I mean. They had they had a lot of rocking to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about, this is kind of jumping to a totally different kind of artist but still in Texas and I forgot if he's from Austin or not but did you see Daniel Johnston back then? Oh, so, well I saw Daniel when he came back
1: Okay.
2: When
0: I was younger, Daniel didn't really
1: play out very much. He was a—he uh, was just making all those tapes. And I worked at the record store where, uh, in the early nineties, where he, you know, he ended up painting a mural on the side of our Whoa, store. Was, and
0: what was the shop?
1: It was called the uh, Sound Exchange, and it was formerly called Record Exchange. And there's one in Houston that's still there.
0: A record exchange.
1: Yeah, well, it's yeah. called Sound Exchange, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, it was called Record Exchange when I grew up. And I would yeah. take the bus, a little kid, and the guy that was singing for Really Red used to work there. Uh, yeah,
2: cool.
1: Ronnie Bond, you uh-huh. on bondage. Okay, and, I'm uh, not hip to that band. Oh, uh, really? Red was one of the great unusual hardcore bands, and they they're really well known to a lot of people elsewhere because they have um they have a song on "Let Them Eat Jelly Beans." It's one of the uh, standout tracks, and their song "I Was a Teenage Fuck-Up, which is on this great little EP became a sort of canonical in the Kill by Death kind of era mm-hmm. song that more younger people know it than people my age, oddly. Interesting, yeah. And uh, they even, it's so funny, I bought an album by them and uh, that was, it's called Rest in Pain. And it was one of the, it was their last album. And uh, I bought it at that record store, at the recommendation, of course, of, (laughs) I was, you know, at the counter going, what should I get? And that guy was there and everyone, oh, you should get Really Red, you know, so I bought his band. That's
2: hilarious. But uh,
1: they covered War Sucks by Red Crayola. Oh, cool. So, I mean, that whole thing always keeps coming back. You buy the Spaceman 3, you know, and they had a, a record when I was in high school that had, it's called Perfect Prescription. It had a transparent radiation by uh, Red Crayola on it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they also covered an elevator song and on the first one. They did reverberating oh, reverberation. so connecting
0: some stuff. Right
1: yeah. So, the, so every time that you went through all these things that, w- that you would like, it's it was cool being in Texas because things kept pointing you know, I had a, a, a Dwarves uh, 45 that had a, like, one-minute version of Hurricane Fighter Plane <laughs> in the late 80s or early 90s somewhere, like, you know, like, maybe, like, around the time I was, like, 18 or whatever, right. you know, oh, wow, they're into this, too, and it started of was interesting, because in that time before the internet, you didn't really know how people found things or what people like. You read an interview with a band, and they would say, oh, you know, we really like the 13th floor elevators, and it would get you into that
2: absolutely but oh,
1: yeah. but what was really great was that that all these things you know you started seeing these cues from the stuff you listen to that the subculture was very large
0: and yeah. and interesting too they weren't these weren't boring no people making all. this stuff you know well, daniel johnson too i mean so so he would come into the shop and just sell he, tapes he, his- well
1: we know he his manager jeff Tardikoff uh-huh. uh, always kept us with tapes but daniel would always try to come in when he got out of the hospital and sold drawings.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: I always thought it was exploitative and I would never buy them, but some of my friends did and those drawings are worth a lot of money now. I don't doubt that, yeah. But he came back years later and he he was all right, but he, Daniel Johnson wasn't the kind of guy that I think is ever very well remembered as a, I don't think he played many live act dates in his day. Right. he was more of a, uh, those cassettes were ubiquitous. right? Even in Houston when I was a kid, like they were uh, part
0: of who we all were. Sure. You, you, were, you had some in the You listened to some? Oh, of course, yeah. man. They're, they were also very cheap. Right, yeah. <laughs> what about... Um, this is totally jumping into a totally different space as far as Texas artists go, but um, another one that was kind of like Daniel Johnson was Jandek. Do you, did you ever... What was your... I didn't get into
1: Jandek until I was 18 and in college, and I found out about him working at the college radio, and all the right. kids that worked at the college radio... This back when college radio was pretty deep. It wasn't like right. some people playing like indie rock or whatever. We, indie rock back then was considered underground music. Right. And yeah, I mean that be was also like alternative rock. What people right. now call indie rock or college rock. College rock. But really even college time. rock, the kids in college didn't much. I mean, some of them did, but you know, a lot of those kids were deep. They liked yeah. Jandek, and Jandek though he was from Houston. He might as well have been from Mars. No one had ever seen him before. Right. No, Everyone knew that Corwood Industries had a Houston address, but no one even knew he was from Houston. For all they know, he could have been from Poland, and that could have been the address of the P.O. Box. It was just... I remember once Bob Guccione Jr. came in for South by Southwest, and I was like 19, and he told me and my friend at the station that if we found Jandek, he'd give us money to write an article. Hmm. Because it was this great mystery.
0: Yeah.
2: You
1: know,
0: but right. that's interesting too. It's like the Texas has created a lot of, you know, mysterious artists too in that rock canon. I mean, or at least they've been um, canonized that way, like Daniel Johnson and Rocky Erickson and Jan Deck, You know, where they have these. They're pretty eccentric people that have stories. Well,
1: a a lot of the things I think with uh, Daniel Johnston and Rock Erickson is the mental problems. Yeah. And and honestly, uh, you know, the state in Austin, particularly the state institutions, like everybody works at the School for the Blind. Mm -hmm. A lot of people work at mental hospitals. Like it's very much a weird part of life when they're like, you know, how they drop off, uh, you know, people with mental problems when they get out of the hospital in San Francisco notoriously. They do that in Austin, too, or they used to
0: drop them off what just like at the bus station yeah they just that?
1: drop them off in the, in austin and that's where the state mental hospital is anyway so
0: is it that building that's right downtown like yeah no, the state Red hospital
1: River. last time i visited which I, I had a roommate that went there and the, i knew a lot of people used to go there but you know hmm. in the, the thing is, the texas people do a lot of psychedelic drugs i don't know why but there was something right. i think part of that elevator's legacy and butthole surface and all that sure. it was a very uh trippy culture yeah. and a lot of people that couldn't handle it ended up in those places
0: right I you know I the one time I probably ate the most amount of mushrooms in my life was it was in Texas in Denton I was on tour with some guys I was DJing uh, some hip-hop dudes a wall one Z man and the sky and we were on we had a day off in Denton Texas we played rubber gloves the night before this was like a 2003 great place. and uh, yes awesome time and we had a day off and we spent the whole day Uh, We, like, crashed at my friend's girlfriend's house. She, like, lived above a garage. It was, like, classic scenario. So we just ate a big bag of mushrooms and, like, watched, like, eight movies, like, back to back to back, like, for a whole day. Just completely enthralled, uh, laughing, and just didn't even leave the house. We are just, like, eating mushrooms all day long. Like, uh, yeah. Well, that was my Texas. Welcome to Texas. (laughs) Yeah. It was perfectly fun. It was great, actually. Yeah.
1: Now that was an interesting thing. There was definitely a counterculture in Texas. I think might be a little more interesting in a Denton or Austin because most yeah. of the people in those two towns don't come from uh, those towns. They're call- yeah, college and they're towns. There's people that are misfits in these giant cities that are kind of not just square, but they're kind of oppressive towns. I mean, I love Houston. I, I every time I go there, I like it better than Austin these days. But oh, cool. I mean, there's so much going on. You forget how much there is particularly in terms of things that aren't music. Yeah. You know, they always had a great art scene there. They always had, you know, definitely for music that's not rock and roll, like hip hop and, you know, oh, they've been sure. it's chopped and screwed there, you know.
0: Absolutely, yeah. DJ like, Screw a lot. Like the, I mean, yeah. yeah, the
1: Ghetto Boys are from there. We're yeah, Rap-A-Lot Records. Uh, yeah, Gangster. Out. So Houston always had a lot of interesting I things I mean, like Mike that.
0: Dean, too, who's like a gigantic producer. Oh, yeah, you it's know? still around. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so yeah they houston always had you know i guess you know they always had culture but it was always a really oppressive town even in the 50s or even
2: if oh, you listen to
1: like 50s. midnight special by Leadbelly, he's already going yeah. if you are in houston you better walk right you better not gamble you better not fight it. they gonna throw you in wow. jail you know like that the you know andre williams wrote a book a few years ago and it's so funny because he lived in houston for a while and he he put it as the most oppressive place in there too like it was just wow you know these towns in Texas like the, the law and all that there, and that's where the elevators are always getting in trouble like Houston and Dallas and mostly those are the two oh, yeah. big ones but you know it's just all this trouble so people move to Denton or Austin where they can just have fun and relax a little more And uh, have you, you
0: done gigs like in uh, further south Texas like when you DJ like McAllen or I like wish Laredo I
1: wish it? I'm sad, sadly stuck in like the in the city, the major cities. Yeah, like I, I I've been trying. I love playing in small markets. I tend to do pretty well, but they tend to just have me in wherever there's some hipsterville or what you know, <laughs> right, right. mini Williamsburg in some city. Right. Uh, that's where I tend to be. So, but uh, I would love nothing more. I I've been getting so into this regional music from there, and uh, I've even found a lot of great Macallan records. No that's really? Great labels, yeah, and uh, you know. So much great San Antonio stuff. Oh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's really, uh, I would love to be more about the map. And I think that the map, honestly, is expanding again. Yeah. But I think the internet mixed with the really sort of tough job markets for millennials and all that means that a lot of people are staying in these smaller, more affordable places, whether they're sure. with their parents or getting a cheap housing and right. making cool things and i honestly i think these cities like new york man it's 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 a lot harder to find cool people compared I'm to saying, some of these other man. places i visit because i know yeah. You know.
0: i know yeah we were just talking about that too before we started just how that new york scene is kind of ref- refracted or kind of uh is a little displaced now too i mean you've been djing in new york now Well, what year did you move to new york I moved here in 98, but I wasn't a DJ, I was just
1: a musician back then.
0: Yeah, so you had, two, you had a couple bands, where you played guitar in bands, right?
1: Well, it's funny, back then I got paid not for guitar. I was, I'd been a guitarist up to that point, and then I was here for a summer at the end of a tour. With a, I As in this band, I did like a 90-day tour, and we're moving to Chicago. And we played... And that was Noodle? No, no, that was the Hammocks. Okay. And we played over 80 nights in the 90 days, and we only stayed in one motel. Like We are very tired.
0: You just slept in the van or something, or...?
1: Oh, no mostly we stayed at people's houses uh, yes, we've been course. touring a lot and we knew people and uh, everyone knew somebody somewhere most of the places yeah. and, uh, it's a couple a couple of nights at a van and a truck stop in a weird town but overall right. the kindness of strangers Yeah. And, and friends
0: so you ended up in New York or something
1: well we were supposed to go to Chicago and one of the guys got a DUI so he had to go to Maryland to live with his sister while he and work to earn money to go so we didn't have to be in Chicago yet so I thought You know, my friend's girlfriend was leaving for the summer in New York, so I thought, oh, you know, I'll just go moving to New York. So I moved to New York for the uh, summer of 2000, oh, no, 1998. And I thought I was, and I kept telling this band in Chicago I was going to, you know, join them. But one of the things, I guess, is I joined all the bands I could when I was here because I didn't plan on staying. So I was, like, in four bands. And then I got asked to some of these guys that were in these bands we played with from the past, had a band that had got signed to Slash Records, which was, at that point, yeah. a, attached with London. Slash London was the label. And they were,
0: you know, Universal Entertainment, basically. Yeah, and I mean, well, this is 98. Okay, so yeah. it was called Polygram. It was before it was called Universal. Right, so Faith No More was already kind of off the label then, because that's where Faith No More first was on Slash.
1: Yeah, no, they had, but they did have Roddy's other uh, band in Teen, and they uh-huh. had... Uh, Asian Dove Foundation. I'm trying to remember who was on. Those were your label
0: mates at the time. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Those, those were your label mates.
1: Right? Yeah, we play at those things with the, uh, you know, at the music conferences, and those were the yeah. kind of bands. I can't remember who else. Um, for a, a minute, Echo and the Bunnymen. We did a tour with them because they were on the label for a minute. Oh
2: wow! Yeah,
0: what year was that? It's
1: like '98 or something. Oh, cool. But I think I don't remember. But the thing that was great was so. These guys didn't have like a keyboard player and they needed the label one. It's to sound like the record and they were on a retainer. So I just sort of, um, they're like, why don't you play keyboards? I'm like, man, I don't know how to play keyboards. I'm a guitarist. And they're like, you can figure it out. One of the guys is in rehab. <laughs> so I started getting a salary just to be in this band. So I was like, well, I, I should, and, and, and I was in New York, which is kind of my dream. I always wanted to be here. I just didn't think that I was responsible enough to ever be able to, because uh, you know how it is. You live in Texas and you see people come and go from New York all the time and they sure. fail and they come home. I didn't want to be yeah. another one of the casualties, you right, know. Right. But I had a little job, so I went and I did. And I spent like a couple years, and I moved over to bass pretty soon after that. But I, I I didn't even get to do what I did hmm. with the band I got paid to be in for a couple years because, uh, you know, they never needed a guitarist. <laughs>
0: huh, but you did go on tour playing keys.
1: Yeah, and then playing bass, yeah. yeah.
0: Interesting. Huh. Yeah. That's not like people don't really necessarily now they you're so much associated as a DJ and like a selector and like a curator, hmm. but the band stuff is like just a it's Well, I ex- have a very chapter.
1: undistinguished career as a band guy. Right. Like I'd be one of those dudes that would write one of those books years later about being in millions of bands and never having any success but traveling a lot and meeting all the other people <laughs> All right. like I, I was one of those guys that kind of you know I don't know I mean I just played with all kinds of people and I kind of slipped through the cracks and it honestly when after September eleven I was like all right, I'm thirty you know and 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 all this stuff is going on it's really bad I need to get and I couldn't work I used in New York once like our band got dropped, I got temp jobs and it was so easy to work and after September eleven there's no work here
2: right
1: it was like I really the time you need to examine who you are and everything because it was like you other than all the tragedy and i had worked in both towers
0: no way yeah and
1: i and i was actually on call that day i worked in uh financial sector so it was mostly right. like a few bu- those two buildings and the buildings around it and yeah were you down of there my, no but it's so funny i was i would wake up and i would go to the couch near the phone because back then <laughs> i had a phone on a cord isn't that right. funny
2: Oh, waiting and for a and I would
1: set my alarm, and I would go sleep there and wait for the call from the yeah. temp agency. Yeah. And, and I got a call from Houston from a, an old punk rocker, actually Rad Richard, who's in the Black Punk Rock movie. Oh, uh, wow. Like, a, he gave me a call. For, he worked at Continental Airlines. He's like, "Man, don't go into work today," because he thought I was working at the World Trade Center every day, which I was just yeah. working this he He's like, "Man, train, a plane hit it," and, uh, and so I was there with wow. that guy Shannon from the Cows. Oh wow! And he had a guest from Minneapolis there, and we're like, "Man, we need to go." we go look at this and the guy on the couch is like World Trade Center's not going where we go out and they're both on fire Holy crazy shit. and you know I like I said I've been in both of those a lot some of them for you know a couple months you know in those offices oh, wow, so really? I don't really you know I don't keep good relationships with people or talk to anyone that mm-hmm. work.
0: Right, you were just attempt just getting through the day, right? Well,
1: that, and I just, I don't know. I didn't really have much in common with people over there. Did you of,
0: ever go to any of Stephen Dima's events at the World Trade Center? Because, you know, he was a promoter. There. Right,
1: right, right. No, I went to some things down there. They had some cool, um, I don't know what I went to. What's the the 100 guitar thing was down there? No way, really? Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, can't remember what else. But then they had, they had some pretty cool experimental music things that when it was done, too, at the... World Trade Plaza or something right right near there in Battery Park City kinda of area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with some stuff. But overall the thing is down there there was nothing cool. It was horrible. I mean you go up I worked at a hundred or above on two of the buildings and you would go wow, man. if you wanted to smoke a cigarette, which I did back then, you would have to go take the elevator down to like the forty fifth floor or something, you'd go to another set That's of right elevators, down. take it down, then you'd leave and once you got out of the building you'd light the cigarette and you look at you're watching, oh man, and you, you would put it out after like a couple of drags, and you get back in the elevator. We had to go through security, the elevator, go go up, get, get to whatever, 40, whatever floor, go up to the top. But one time I was, I was working at this uh, Japanese bank for a long time there called Daiichi Kengyo.
2: Hmm.
1: And the guys, and I think they lost a lot of people in the, in the thing, but
2: hmm.
1: one of the people, and no one ever talked to me there. I don't even know if... Like I said, it was one of those things where I couldn't tell if it was a culture or language barrier. I never talked to anyone either. We just did my work. Right. But one of the guys got me and took me down a floor, down a staircase. Like I was like, where are we going? And and then we opened this door to this office suite and this cloud of smoke comes out and there's, I don't know, like there's an office suite with an entry area and two rooms and it must have had like 100 Japanese executives in it and they're all smoking cigarettes and, and speaking japanese and uh and he brought me in there and i, and I spoke wow. and I thought, oh that's how we do it you know and yeah. there's no windows in that place or anything right. you know? so it was like it was raw but but that <laughs> it was a really over other than that one nice experience it was mostly an alienating kind of uh yeah. place to be and when i saw those things go down i mean you know it's just hard to know what was going on and if people were in there like we couldn't yeah. really
0: see see
1: anything. We we were watching from a bridge and we we couldn't really see what it was going on. Were you in Brooklyn? Actually I was on the Pulaski Bridge between Long Island City and Brooklyn and it's perfect view of the World Trade Center. You know we're sitting with all the guys in the orange vests, and like I said they were both on fire when we got out there. It was a really weird but yeah but it became a thing that once I processed it you know it affected me a lot and then I uh, I don't know I I just decided you know I couldn't get work I was really depressed about all that stuff and it was just a weird city to live in people were still walking around like have you seen my Father and you gotta be like, oh man, I hate no. to tell you if he was last seen in there. You haven't seen him for a month Yeah, I gotta tell you, you, you know, like it was just a really were, you know, there There's like machine guns everywhere. That thing was burning forever. Yeah, yes. so I decided that I should come up with a non-music plan for life because <laughs> I never really had a plan anyway, so I decided to go to graduate school Oh. And and, and so oh, right. I went to, uh, I applied to, to CUNY Grad Center, who had a bunch of my favorite people whose books I like and stuff taught there. So I, I, I could go there cheaply. So I went there, and uh, and quit playing music. And and the funniest thing is, right when I got out of the music scene, that's when all my friends became famous, and when Williamsburg really became a thing. And, uh, right. uh, you know, like well I when I quit like this became the center of the world it was like because there was kind of a dead period in there in the later 90s and early 2000s and then after september 11 like when that uh, strokes album broke and then right. the tv on radio and yeah 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 and yes. all those kind of famous things it also seemed to somehow affect even the most underground stuff from like black dice and right. you know like gang gang dance and like all these people i knew yes. in the neighborhood were doing uh we're getting well known around the world. Whether it be some really hard to listen to, like challenging noise band, or a sure a, a famous pop band, and uh, I missed like the whole thing. a uh, in 2005, I was uh, writing my thesis, and uh, I, I was already done with my all my master work, and I had got into the next level of the PhD history program and all that. And, and oddly, I was, my thesis was about uh, this. I had this thing published about. I got really interested in when hip-hop went downtown and, uh, you know, these kind of (laughs) weird teenagers from the Bronx who were kind of, you know, ostracized from the greater community and not considered legitimate by like the black music community or anything, met these, you know, odd misfits downtown and they started a, you know, this unusual relationship. So I was writing about that. But when I did it, I never really, liked or cared about DJs I have to admit I was a college radio DJ but like and i played a couple of nightclub rock gigs but like at a show where they want you to play songs song between yeah yeah, yeah. Like,
0: it's a little different
1: yeah but I would go out at night in the 90s and it was just irritating like everywhere you went now I look back at it I wish that I was more open-minded but everywhere I went I just there'd be a DJ you know and there'd be like right. some guy doing ambient techno blending a lot of people playing dub music and rare group funk back then. There was even like, you know, there was soul parties like I do now. There was yeah. a, there was a lot of these sort of glam and rock and roll and whatever DJs. Like, everybody's playing music. Most of it, I admit, wasn't the kind of music that
0: I liked. Sure. And at like, that time, it was still... Now, we're talking about what two thousand and five. No, I'm talking
1: like or before I'm that. I'm talking about before that, like in the So late it's still 90s all vinyl. Early,
0: it's still all wax.
1: It's all right? it's all vinyl, and uh, but it's still like, a, you know, for me at the time. I mean, like I said, I, I was a fan of like, I don't know, Velvet Underground or, you know, Pure Ubu or, I don't know, the Dead Boys or something. Right. I, I don't know. Like I liked a lot of stuff, but it was all, you know, and I like black music, but I really liked you know, I don't know, like early James Brown or like, you know, what I didn't, I didn't, like re-
0: blues and stuff like that. And
1: I love blues back then. Yeah. And I love, I mean, yeah, I like, I don't know. I, I like the New York Dolls and, uh, you know, what I don't know.
0: Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. I, I liked,
1: I liked a lot of the stuff and I I liked some of the new bands and like, you know, like US Maple would always stay over or like, you know, I right. like, but I never, uh, I never really liked really shiny, bright, like Northern soul style music and yeah. I never liked, you know, I, was, I liked reggae, but I thought that dub stuff was so boring when you come in these places and the speed, like, boom boom, 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 You know, and like, so I just never, honestly, I was ignorant. I wish now, now that I look back at it, nightlife was so democratic, to be able to go out in the East Village and Lower East Side and hear a completely different genre of music in every place. Right. And, and it'd be totally unique. Now I would love it. But back then, like I so said, I was more just from a rock and roll thing, and I didn't really... In, in a little bit of experimental stuff, but I didn't really right. uh, get all this stuff. So when when I started studying I don't know, like all this Africa Vamada stuff and Cool Herc and all this stuff. So these when you're doing
0: the thesis you were yeah. you were absorbing
1: Well I like but it got me interested in these disco DJs and these other people and the way that a DJ. Basically it made it where I wasn't I mean I was still embarrassed to be a DJ when I became because basically I I was earning money. I had a little record label. I started playing in bands again in 2005 because oh, right. I got the itch. Yeah. So I started playing again. I started doing all this stuff. And I got asked to, uh, to do a DJ gig at Motor City. And I thought, well, you know, I was putting on these shows already at the label and the playing, whatever. I'll do that. And it, I was becoming this thing where all these music people, like it was a way for by 2005 is the way musicians earn money is so the the label
2: was
0: new york night train
1: Records. yeah okay so you earn money on the side to dj that's how you would be a musician and i in the late aughts that was the thing but i it wasn't that way before djs were kind of a different kind of person than a rock and roll musician before then
0: yeah definitely well there's djs that are professional djs that's all they do and there's people in bands That sort of moonlight as a DJ that are more like selectors. They're not like they're not the DJs that you would see at some of these legendary clubs that you were uh, maybe referencing. The history
1: of the DJ, you know, it goes back, it's hard to know where to draw the line. But a DJ, as I see it, is a person that's a mediator between music and people. Yeah. So like a radio DJ, a club DJ, all that, what that is, a person that's playing music. Right. And for people but that's like you know, anyway, so at Motor City Bar, you know, where I... at. This is Lower East Side of Manhattan. Right? Yeah, I ended up having over three hundred and something Wednesday nights there, and uh, you know, <laughs> I saw it, you there a
0: few times.
2: Yeah. yeah,
1: it was just this thing where people would go and you play records, and no one cares when you're a bar DJ. You do You just play music, and people walk. Oh my God, I don't believe really what this is. Or they like, oh, this sucks? Or what? But you know, right. You just communicate with people, and uh, and 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 I honestly just looked at it as a fun thing and a little money but nothing you could live on or anything and then but what was weird i didn't i started realizing over that you know people kept asking me to do other stuff
2: yeah.
1: so you know I, I started playing at my other friends bars and i've been hanging out a lot so i had a lot of places and so
0: what was the deal with the label because obviously people when you have a record label too then people start to associate you with associate you with that as well, well it was new york
1: night train records so yeah was, became my my i my first party was a record release party for Kid Congo Powers. Cool. And like, Kid called all his friends. We got Julie Cruz singing, and Jim cool. Sclavunos from the Bad Seas played, and uh, you know, yeah, and I don't know a bunch of guys. people. Gibby Haynes, I got him the DJ. Yes. Yeah. Spin- oh no, Ian Spinotis is the DJ. I got Gibby the MC.
0: So you're like culling some of these people that you've known now for quite a while, right? Yeah.
1: And then Ian yeah. called me after that because he thought I did a good job. And he asked me to put on a DJ gig for him and Calvin Johnson. Because they, they were on this tour where he was he had a book that came out, his first book. and He was Ian doing did. Yeah, readings and tours. So I, I put on one in Brooklyn and one in uh, Manhattan as it was in the old days. But tonic and Monkey Town. Nice. So two blasts from the past. Yeah,
0: I'd say Monkey Town now. It's like, yeah, it's funny yeah. to think what that neighborhood now
1: is. Yeah. Or Tonic was like one of the best in my opinion, places we ever had.
0: Yeah, it was a great room.
1: So anyway, when I gave the guy at Motor City a flyer for that, he's like, why don't you do something here? And I was like, "And I did, I, did, I don't know, I was just doing this one gig, but then I was like, oh, I <laughs> could, you're a DJ whatever." And so, But I, I just got other people to do it mostly, and I would just DJ one. Like, I remember the first time I had Bob Burt. Nice, you know, Bob and, Burt. And the Sonic next week he- was Gibby Haynes, and the next was, I think, I don't remember, like Kid or something. I just had friends that were in bands play, you know, Kip Malone and Nick Zinner, like I just bring them in and then I would play when nobody wanted to hear. But after over time I did more and then like I said, people just start asking me, there's Oh, you DJ. I found out you DJ now come to my bar. So I started going to these bars and I had no idea what I was doing. And I, like I said, I didn't, it didn't consider it a respectable kind of thing. But once I started getting asked to do dance parties, that's when like, you know, I really started feeling inadequate because I, uh, I didn't... The kind of music I was playing at m- these bars, you know, like nobody wanted to dance to. And, well, it's uh,
0: just music to drink to, basically, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I tried... But then there was so much more money. And the other thing, I was putting on these big happenings at Glasslands with uh, with Vashti, you know, from uh, Golden Triangle and Kills yes. uh, and all that. And, and she, she had an art gallery then called Live With Animals. And... You know, you like everybody dress up, we'd have themes, we do all that and uh, I don't know, that was like you know, we kept having these guest DJs, but I you know a lot of my DJing became mopping up, like
0: what do you mean, like close? Well, I watched people
1: ruin the party with their DJing, so I would come in and like try to figure out a way to keep people engaged or whatever.
0: Well yeah, that is the kind of goal. Yeah, and then As also I had
1: got a bunch of soul records, so I had a done a soul clap. Enid's, but it didn't work out because I wasn't very good at it. But I thought so this.
0: What, what year is
1: this? It's like two thousand seven, and I, I really thought that there would be. Honestly, I I didn't like I didn't. Everyone was listening to like DFA stuff, and right. and and everyone was listening to like that's when everyone liked reggaeton, and 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 you know, and that's when clubs start getting big subwoofers and all that. And I didn't really, I wasn't opposed to it as much as like I just didn't, you know. I don't every now and then I bring up my old hip hop 12 minutes play like Catch the Beat or something. But
0: nice. All right. honestly,
1: I just didn't really like, I don't know. I, I wanted to figure out a way to play dance music. It had drums and guitars and and and, and, the, yeah. and, and was more organic. And, and it seemed to me that the soul records and the... It's interesting to point out in that period I was, we were talking about where uh, music was more democratic in the marketplace. It was also more interracial in the... Uh, and it's listening shit. Like, if you... it's I, I don't know how, but a few weeks ago, I ended up looking at the like 1960 like R&B charts. The nice. big summer hit was Kathy's Clown by the Everly Brothers with black people all over America. You know? And, and, and the yeah. same thing, white kids were listening to black music and they had all these... You know, it was right in the middle of the segregation battles and these kids really wanted to be together on both ends, you know? Like, they didn't want to be separate. And then sure. something happened in the... In the later 60s like particularly 68 you know where you know the there's all this separation whether it be you want to consider that white people got into hard rock and and, and black people start getting in the funk or or whatever right right yeah there's like kind of a weird divide
0: with rock and funk but i think you know there's also a cross-section of people that love both i mean obviously
1: yeah but like if you read an interview like with james brown's band they always talk about how there were so many white people in the mid-60s Right. And by the by, 1970 it was almost all black people. It was just a handful. Oh, of interesting. People. And then yeah. you go, you go see pictures of these white rock shows. You know, you don't see a bunch of black people out there wanting to hear like Foghat or what. You know, <laughs> no. and, and, and the thing is, is that uh, that separation, I, ironically, is right when the separation and sound came. All the records that in, in the earlier 60s, you know, they, they were all recorded in a room. You know, right. there was every now and then overdubs and stuff and like famous oh,
0: separation of sound meaning like, but most but records I
1: play are people that are literally playing at the same time with all the bleed. And the right. other funny thing is if you look at a bar band from, I don't know, 1965 or 1962, whether they be white or black, like you realize from like the songs, the Kingsmen play or whatever on their records, they're playing the same songs that the black bands were playing, you know, and, 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 you know, in yeah, 1960s, so six, yeah, everybody's still playing midnight hour on both sides. Right. You know, it's people had such shared experience with the music also, and it's just I just think once you got this other period where you have the funk and the sort of pre disco kind of things and the all the things that became clubby music and I understand why they did and I don't disrespect them. But it all has to do with this compartmentalization of the beat. And honestly for disco to have worked, you needed these DJs to have like those carpeted drum room kind of drums where you could slice the beat really tight. You know, yeah. when hip hop started, they were all looking for those breaks where you could get it really tight in there. And sure. like all this music that started coming later in clubland was all about separation. And it was all about elongating things. And it was all about, you know, in a sense, like the taking the song structure away and making it, just making it more, you can dance longer, which I understand. Right. But my thing, more and more coming from my generation and <laughs> underground music, I want it to be shorter. I don't want a song to go on more than two and a half minutes. Right, and yeah, I don't yeah.
0: these disco, the disco and funk records of the time are going like six and a half, seven minutes long, or five minutes. And know?
1: I love the excitement of like a real live-sounding drum sound. And I love, yeah. I love it when they get excited and speed up. I love when there's a mistake. Sure. I love all that. So for me, I was drawn. Once I started getting these forty, and again I didn't have any forty fives. Then I didn't know anything about this music. I just so, I had like James Brown, and Otis Redding albums. So LPs. it sort of
0: starts with that, with James Brown, and
1: Otis Redding, and then you get whatever. Well, no, well, no. Had
0: all the I had all the canonical people's LPs,
1: but and yeah, I had a lot of compilations. Sure, but you know, like when when you put down like I don't know, I found some records across the street when good, bad Art collected clothes, and I gave the girl. Next door, I gave her all the 78s, which were really nice. Like There were a lot of sun 78s. Wow. I took the 45s, which were mostly crappy, but some of them were cool, and I started playing at my DJ gigs. And right. then I, when I was playing, my friend of mine worked at a junk shop, and he was like, hey, man, we just got in a bunch of these. You should come over tomorrow. So I went to the junk shop and got hundreds and hundreds of amazing Soul 45s for a few dollars. Right, nice. And then And I just got so into queuing them up. And how the beat goes out. I love transporting them on the subway because I had to take that big milk crate on the subway. Right. But the 45s had this little mini box, of course, you know, and yes. then over time I was like, these are so great. And I had been looking kind of for since as someone who likes everything, I've been looking for like kind of a limitation. I was like, like you know the iron chefs are like scallions and pork belly, go. And you right. show your creativity through what you have. Right. I think the big problem with bands or DJs and all that, now, now you can do anything everything is nondescript it's just like blah you're right yeah and so i think and i already realized that then and i was like i want to have like a direction and that so i got into all kinds of 45s because you know there's most of the good songs you couldn't that i wanted i couldn't even play
2: right
0: right what meaning that like you didn't own them or they're most tracks, tracks weren't game? available right, on right.
1: uh 45 on lps right, right and right. then when i got into that heavy stuff i couldn't afford the records i wanted because they're yeah. too hard to find and expensive.
0: Well, yeah, the 45 marketplace, too. Now, mm-hmm. too, even more and more is getting mm-hmm. scarcer, right? Like,
1: Yeah, but it became a great thing because what happened was they, they ended up... Um, when I was kind of having these... I was already having all these people at the parties. And like anything, people go to parties because they're fun. They don't go to a party for a DJ.
0: So the party mean like the Soul Clap parties, right?
1: Yeah, Soul Clap was one of the first parties. The big, the big first one was... Uh, the animal train happening was the w- first one that we had that was substantial. The Motor City weekly party was a weekly. Yeah. I had a weekly at the beauty bar uh, called Boogaloo Shampoo.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. You know, the starting in 2007. The beauty bar that was, on Bro- that was on Broadway? No, the beauty bar on
1: 14th. Street. I started on 14th. I mean, when they started on uh, Bushwick in 2009, I moved there. But, you know, like, I just kept doing these things. But people go yeah. to the party, honestly... In, in the rest of the world, like I told you right now, Peter, we're gonna go to this party tonight. It's gonna have amazing music, no one will be there. To if you like 23 or 25 or 28, whatever you're like, or it's gonna be a bunch of like guys looking at the records to see if it's the first edition. Or what. Right. you don't wanna go there,
2: nah.
1: You know, if I'm like, hey, we're gonna go to this party, the music's crappy, but it's gonna be all these interesting people we know there. And, uh, you know, if you go to a party, it's like, let's say we're going to a party at Michelle Cable's house.
2: Right.
1: You're not going to ask what the music's going to be like. You're <laughs> just going to go to the party. I mean, she'll have good music on. But yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. People go to a party because of who's there and all that. And I had a lot of friends. I liked doing parties. I'd been studying the history of New York nightlife and parties. And sure. So the DJing kind of came out of that and after that in a way to make the music at the parties more likable for... Uh, a certain group of people, but also to where it didn't piss off certain people. Like I noticed when you're playing at these parties, you know, I had a lot of people from different subcultures coming and you play one kind of song and it turns some people off. You play another kind right. of song, it turns up people, off. but you play some like Clarence, Frogman, Henry, and everybody's happy, <laughs> you know, or some James Brown. Nobody's going to get mad. No, of course not. And And through that, you know, also just those things become who you are and it became really i didn't even have to think about it after a while the sound of the parties became these weird old 45s i kept finding and as i found them they sure. were so interesting to me since i didn't know them so every week i mean part of why i also kind of sucked but it was kind of great i didn't know what these things were i was playing and for years in every week all i played was what was new to me because i was like a new discovery i too. did so much digging and then Honestly, once I started making a living, I started making okay money. So, I spent all the money on records. So, right. every night was just me trying stuff out on people. And I was working, by 2008, I was working like at five residencies. And I worked, you know, I, I mean, for a few years, I was working over 300 uh, gigs a year.
0: In But not just in New York, but everywhere, right? Or yeah, but
1: you got to understand that some of the ones here, I did a lot of after hours. I did a lot of right. whatever. So, some of the nights were more than one gig. But, you know, like... right. A, a lot of these gigs were five hours, six hours. So I was I was going through hundreds of records, you know, every day. And, and so it would was... You,
0: would, you go, would you dig for records every day, like during the daytime? Or what was yeah. your routine for that?
1: Well, I slept all day But yeah, I go find so. stuff everywhere. When I started traveling, I found stuff more. I got on sure. eBay when I got money. I started buying everything I could that... You know, I buy big lots of records, you know, and I dig through them. I just go just lived every day i made a flyer because every day i had a gig right you know it, it was just like uh and, and the funny thing is that doing things every night is the off- contrary to like common sense you think oh nobody want to go because this guy plays every night right but really what happens is you by default in a time when new york was actually so funny everybody in 2008 is like oh williamsburg's done Lori's side is done. Everything's done. It's already all over. But really, what we were starting to see was the first migration of this sort of new artist class—the uh-huh. people that had seen all these bands and stuff on the road. There's a minute when, in like the mid two thousands, where every single band playing out of town at a nightclub was from Brooklyn,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: no matter what genre of music. You know, right. whether it's Anti or Black Dice, like right. every night. So. All these kids that had new bands wanted to come here. All 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 these people in subculture wanted to come to Brooklyn. So during that period in Brooklyn and Lower East Side, I was doing something every day and there was a gigantic hole. Like and you know, like Todd P was like the guy doing all the good shows back then. Sure. Yeah. But he didn't really have he'd have DJs at his thing. There's usually band guys playing. You know, and the thing is they're they're playing R and B hits and like top 40 and and and, you know right in in the skater kids are all listening to the top 40 hip-hop songs and the classic hip-hop so for me like i was playing the girls at beacon's closet and like guys from rock and roll bands and i i didn't i played there like
0: a rock like a rock and roll dj
1: yeah where the people i knew wanted they liked this stuff and those other people it turns out at the Todd P shows and these skater hip hop kids or whatever were still willing to deal with what I had. And some of them even liked it. So I was able to on a nightly basis, you know, just play to all these subgroups. And for every, you know, I don't know, 50 people that hated me and 100 people that were indifferent in a night, there are at least 10 new people that I hadn't seen that thought, oh, this is pretty cool, we don't hear this music every night. And those people would come back tomorrow night or next week or next month. Right. So I built it really day by day, like the most grassroots style following you could. Like it was really person by person. I met most of the people that were into what I do during those years. Like I, right. they came up and would talk to me. Like I had no, now I don't know who any of these people are at my nights.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's because it's already. I mean, now it's been going on for well over ten years. Yeah. So what? um, Shaking around, shaking all over, under, sideways, down. So that's the longest running residency of a mall, right?
1: Yeah, that's the mixture of uh, shaking all over by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, and then under, over, under, sideways down by the Yardbirds. In one word,
0: Uh, nice. So that's at home sweet home, or
1: yeah, and that's every Friday for uh, since two thousand eight. And Soul clap is still my oldest running party. I just in New York, I haven't been doing it as much because of um, I've been having a little trouble figuring out how to do it. But I've been doing, for instance, I did like four Soul claps last month. They just were in different cities.
0: Yeah. So how does it translate outside of New York?
1: Great, you know. And now there, I have to give Michelle Cable some credit. When I met Michelle Cable. The soul crap was like the big kind of North Brooklyn right. soul party, and in fact, and it sold people didn't even go to it it was just something
0: yeah, it was like rock kids,
1: yeah, or just people from there art kids rock kids like yeah, said beacons yeah. closet employees like right. you know people. because
0: they wouldn't go yeah, but you wouldn't see those kids wouldn't go to a p t to see like keb Darge d j you know what I'm no, saying? and like, they wouldn't know who he was they, they don't know who he is, so and I like, didn't
1: know who he was back then.
0: <laughs> right, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong. I, with that. I built
1: it all on my own. Like I didn't know who any of these people were,
0: which is, in a way, makes it a little more. It makes it genuine because it's mm. not like if you weren't informed by some of the older brass, like a Kev Darge, who's like, you know, uh, you know, this elder statesman of like Soul 45s and stuff. Like, then you figure out your own niche, and people. You, as long as you have people coming supporting, then there's you can't hate on them. No,
1: in a way it was a very organic, community oriented thing. The sad thing is that it, my ignorance isn't isn't a good excuse always for uh, but I really honestly I think it was my Texas rugged individual. I didn't really care what other people did. Right. I already put it in my mind that I don't like record collectors that much and that's the opposite of love and, and, and music fandom right or musicianship like being a musician or being a music fan to me is different than like collecting and, and the other thing is sure and and now it's different because i guess i must be a record collector because i have well eventually you have to become like, yeah probably that. like twenty thousand. of them you know right. and in a, and it's horrible i don't want all these things and I, i'm i'm always struggling with the way i look at it and, and through what i do i mean obviously you know i know a lot of these people that that do 45 parties and stuff now and i like a lot of them and I was being close-minded. I didn't think hmm. those people were cool. I didn't. I thought they were ruining old music for people. Well, I thought they how. were taking the things that were exciting about this music I like and making it unexciting. And so I just ignored it and did what I wanted to do. But by doing that thing at Glasslands, you know, those girls had no idea what they're doing. Nobody went to their club. They were calling me because my band played there, and we like we right. sold out the Glass House which is easy, and uh-huh. we had a really good night at Glasslands when they opened, and they had nothing, and they were like, could you do it? And I was like, I don't, I'm, we broke up, I don't have a band right now, I just have play, it was like, play records. Like, will people pay money for you to play records, someone else's records? I'm like, I don't know. Huh. But we did, we did it, and it was really successful, and but by the time I met Michelle, I had been doing this party for years, and it was still $3 to get in. I gave half of the doorway to the winner, And the party was so big, even though that space only held two hundred and fifty. Like by the end of the night, we some of these winners got around seven hundred dollars. Like wow, it's
0: crazy. Like like so for people that have no dollar cover, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, so for people that aren't familiar with the Soul Clap party, because you know the listeners of this podcast are kind of far-reaching. Like it's essentially like you play a succession of forty-five like soul funk 45s that people then have a dance competition to right well this is what happened that's the most deductive well, one well
1: right now what it is it's just a it's a 4 hour usually party with it's just dancing to these old soul 45s right. and then there's a contest in the middle for about 20 minutes okay but in the old days we had no idea what we we're doing yeah. and we went and, and free form right yeah i saw these guys at this party i was djing at like i was in a band with a guy who was always trying to dance people off and it was sort of a joke like, instead of fighting you know, right. like, dance
2: off <laughs> so he had a
1: dance off with this guy from another band when I like a kind of thing where I'm in a loft the sun's coming up the old Brooklyn you know right. it was that same building where the Robling Tea Room is which was upstairs in the past, yeah it was wow. still kind of rough back yeah. then you know
0: and uh, when it, the whole building was covered in graffiti and stuff yeah, and, yeah. And
1: so we're up in one of these higher lofts the sun's coming up these guys and I, wow Everyone was watching it. It was so stupid. And I had I already had planned on playing Soul 45 the so next week at Enid's. So I was like, right. I'm just gonna have this dance contest. And so we, as we did it It got uh, more compartmentalized. But when we moved to Glasslands and we did it, it was like we used to let everyone have their own song for one minute. But it started to be right away we'd have over a hundred people wanting to do it. So there was no dance party, it was all just Everyone getting their one minute to come out and do their freestyle like, thing.
0: Dance on stage.
1: Yeah, right? so over... No, no, just in the front of the stage. Okay. And everyone made a big circle. But right. And people really got into it. And people came out of the woodwork. It was right. great, so, but right. it was a real annoying party. So over time... We just kept trying to make it more elegant. So we, we made a dance contest. We, we put numbers on people to so keep track of them. Right. We had judges. We had all this stuff. Made it. Yeah, so, you
0: curate judges. Yeah, so. we made
1: it into this sort of procedure. And the judges were funny because they were a distinguished panel of judges, mostly people that everyone knew. And all the dancers were people everyone knew. So it was sort of like, it was like some dumb theater. Everyone put in a couple of bucks. The winner got half of it. After I paid the door guy and the sound guy, then I got the other half. So I... When Michelle met me, I, 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 she was asking me how much I make for this giant party that like you know, over 500 people are paying to go to. and I was, like, "I don't know. it was hundred. It, 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 it was a very small sum, and right. so she was like, "You're going to charge five dollars now and you're going to give away a $100
2: right. <laughs>
1: prize." And I did that, and people liked it just as much. And sure sure the, the contest became less um, competitive and nasty because when people are trying to get their rent. They're real serious. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know what mean? I mean? Because in, in New York, judging it was really something that everyone wanted to do. I don't know how to express it, it was just a fun. Like, everyone's so always people asking me if come, I need a judge. Yeah, people come up I to me. I never had know. to try to get judges, ever, mm-hmm. you know? That's,
0: that's hilarious. And,
1: and so, uh, so yeah, when, uh, when we did it, it really worked out and it became a compartmentalized form um, that Michelle helped work out around the country where. You know, we get like minded music scene people in every yeah. town. They'd be our judges. And so instead of it being a usual party where uh, a DJ from New York comes in and plays to a town, it's their party. They have, you know, their DJs there. Now, I, I mean, they're judges. Now I have DJs from the town usually come in and do this thing called Contest Selector. Oh, interesting. I don't like
0: DJing with other DJs. I know this sounds bad so you like start like you know doing the classic start and finish the night you do the you hold down the whole night right so well
1: i realize that the success of soul clap and shaking all over and i hate to say this a lot of it is that i dj'd all night and i don't mean that i'm that great at djing but well, honestly but you
0: have the, a control of the vibe people know what the vibe is going to be like. well
1: that's the thing is when you read those dj histories and all that disco you know people went to certain clubs they didn't go to the gallery because right. nicky siano was there and he'd be right. there five nights a week right. and that's how it goes you know what i mean like you wouldn't you you go to a, a place because that's who the dj is right the loft is a great example of that but, but 45 djs were always this thing where there's like 20 guys oh not that but usually there's at least three or four guys and i understand because right. the records are two minutes and and it's it's really hard to play them
0: for dancing and uh, right. and and but it's all these big people, some djs get burnt out after 90 minutes or two hours you right know, like but for me like i i got
1: out of economic necessity like no one really wanted to be a guest at the shaking All Over Party anyway when I started, and so I just did it alone and built this thing. And I was able to increase the energy, looking as a party promoter and not a DJ,
2: uh-huh.
1: I was able to increase energy when I needed to, I was able to slow it down when I needed to, I was able to shift the vibe when I needed to. So those kind of things, when Soul Clap came, you know, it was just me all night, I had an MC and I was a DJ and that's how it went. Right. And I think that the success of it was that I could work with I, a very keen observer of the people that are there. And, and I have a relationship like that thing about well, the they're DJ your crowd, being you know? the mediator between music and people. The, right. It's the crowd changes throughout the night. I pay attention to them. Sure. Other DJs, you know, they come in and they want to play the new record they got and all that. And that's great. Right, right. But I really feel that uh, in, a, in both situations, I tried to have guests at those parties and it never right. went as well when I have guests is when I do it alone. We make more money. And the other thing that's weird is that the dance contest became kind of a joke. Like I just start playing only James Brown during the dance contest. And people are like, he only plays James Brown. So quit doing it. James Brown has so many records that you never have to really repeat them. Sure.
0: And And I mean, there are uh, many, countless of them are very danceable, especially for people that just want to like get loose, you know, that aren't too judgmental.
1: So I created a contest selector Okay. And that way I can keep the vibe up all night. I know it's during dance contests, people dance to anything.
0: Okay. And slow so, records too? I'm sorry? You ever throw slow records on? Like
1: sometimes. Yeah. But uh at, at the contest selector increasingly I either I sometimes get a forty five guy, but sometimes I get a rock star, Whoever Because there's a space between every song during the dance contest. Oh, uh, okay. A group comes up, we call another group up, whatever. So people don't have to juxtapose records. Right. And people will dance to anything because they're trying to win a dance contest. Right, right. So That's I've been weird. using the contest selector. And in a lot of ways, I do use really good local DJs to help promote their party. And I call them up, and I'm like, oh, when's the next party? And they, and they play. And then sure. it's a good way for collector guys to show off their record and talk about it a little and all that. Right, right. But oh, it's also about our stage. a great way to get like the cowboy from the village people up there. <laughs> you know, Randy, who I have a lot, is my selector. Or Daniel really? Johansson or... You know, these cultural figures who are right. really fun people and have good music taste, right. just not DJs. So I worked that out in every town. So so now it's judges and that. And now I try to get a, a little known, preferably newish local band, preferably that just got together in the last year and are kind of excited to play. Right, right. Uh, to, to open, because people don't go see an opening DJ in the opening hour. like. You know nine I like to like i've 11, been that dj many it's times very, it's very hard and i yeah. feel bad people are always making my friends be the opening dj and i feel like it's a bad position to put them in so we have a band people come whatever band whatever time the band says they're playing people will come right so i have a 10 o'clock band i go on 11. so if i go out of town like you have your local band you have your local judges you have one the guy from your local soul party or one of your local musicians is right. the dj and then I'm doing my thing all night. So you do have something from out of town and it's a New York party, but it's it's also your party. Yeah. It's a community event. And we, what we figured out, which is weird, is it was a way, like what I was saying with a party, when you have a party, like you said, having a party at my house, someone might be like, who's going to be there?
2: <laughs>
1: you, these judges already, there's five people you know are going to be there. You know, it's, you kind of know the kind of people that are going to be there. Sure. Well, you've created, it is like a happening. You know what
0: the scene is like. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so we took, I think the revolutionary thing about Michelle's out of town version of the Soul is it became this way where the culture of the music culture of the town, it's their party. And and those people know it's a place that their friends will be and they can go. And, And that part of parties, I think the cult of the DJ left that in the dust a little bit. Like they made it all about, oh, the DJ's
0: gonna be here. Yeah, it's all about the DJ, yeah. yeah. So yeah. if you're into EDM music, you see an EDM
1: DJ, you know that's who's gonna be there and you can right. take your drugs and you can go there. That's great. Right. But for other people, like particularly what I do, there's only, in a given town, probably like 50 people reeling the soul music or something. So sure. they wouldn't, I wouldn't make a profit out of town if I just dealt with them. I have to get a broader community and the people in that community need to know yeah. That it's not something for just snobs or for, you know, people that dress mod or whatever, but that right. it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that, you know, fun people they know will be at and, and it will be presented in a way. Right. And when they get there, I try to make sure that, you know, I don't play hits or anything, but that all this stuff is something they can relate to and feel, you know?
0: Right have you seen like regional uh stuff pop up that are doing the same kind of similar vibe like so if I, I got a google alert a couple of days ago I
1: got one from arcada that's ending that was inspired by the soul clap right that was going for years yeah and uh you know a lot of these towns um i actually like the scene a lot more now a lot of these towns didn't really have that many soul parties 10 years ago it was kind of changing of the guard time There were the A lot of these kind of 90s and early 2000s sort of funk and rare groove kind of parties that were on their way out. And that culture, particularly when hip-hop quit sampling, it really changed the nature of those parties. That's a good point. The Northern Soul parties and mod things that came in with Britpop, those were getting old. And so there wasn't a lot really for people in the demographic I was dealing with for that kind of stuff. So, I mean, and we also went through rock clubs instead of... uh, Traditional dance spaces or yeah, like old that. timey places or whatever. So, and I mostly wanted it because that's what Glassman was. But I also got used to playing for these really big rock PA's and getting this big rock and roll sound yeah. out of the soul music. So, we we kind of went out in the wilderness. We kind of did what I guess Michelle kind of did what you know Black Flag did with hardcore. We went out and we threw these soul parties at a lot of places that never even had a DJ before. Wow, a lot of them were just places where bands play, much less like a soul yeah dj or something like that in a lot of the cases that those places now have a regular monthly soul party and a lot of them you know like i said a lot of these things even the ones that i, I didn't influence whatever i I do feel like the the culture around the things that we've been relentlessly doing for years in these markets um has made it acceptable i think for a younger kind of different group of person to get into soul records and into old
0: 45s and, yeah it's a totally different you know, market yeah, yeah. I'd love to know how you went on tour in Israel, right? With with I know Michelle was two thousand nine. So what was that like? Well, how many? Well, how many gigs did you do? I think eight. No way! Just in the country of Israel?
1: Yeah, most of all were in Tel Aviv, and one was in Jerusalem.
0: Oh, So you did a bunch of stuff. Sequen- yeah. Okay. Cool. So what was that? Tell me what that was like.
1: Uh, I don't know. Was uh, that okay? <laughs> well, I'm Jewish uh, culturally. Okay. So uh, it was nice to go to the motherland. And I saw some old relatives, and, oh, uh, cool. and you know, it was really beautiful. And it, you know, Jonatan from Monotonics took us around. He's really yeah. fun. But uh, yeah, it was all right. You know, the gigs were a little rough. It was funny. I got, I came in there to do a Monotonic's record release party, which was a Faith No More show. In the end, they ended up canceling and making it. They got invited to play with Faith No More. So
0: what? And they canceled. And I came for that record release
1: on. party, and the record release party moved to this Faith No More mm-hmm. Dinosaur Jr. show at a big arena and <laughs> okay. i did a good enough job where the guy invited me the next night to dj at uh what's that james murphy uh dm um, DFA? no uh lcd sound systems and uh mgmt when they were big
0: yeah so wait you did like so when they you were just getting on the radio sure. and all that yeah with the electric eel or whatever yeah so, so you did it was faith no more and dinosaur jr and then the following night it was lcd sound system and, and mgmt yeah.
1: And then I did all these after parties and weird
0: discos. And I did it. What were, an the, what were a, the, Are- so, the Tel Aviv Soul Club. Wow. So what were the arena shows like? Like typical, like, there was, must have been a, was there a disconnect with the audience? Oh, or? it didn't
1: really matter. I mean, the, it, it worked out pretty well. I also have been to Turkey. You know, I was playing a lot of Turkish music and they loved that there. Dope. So, but, uh, like you know. The traditional the, stuff or? Y- yeah, well, more, you know. Funky The shit? thing about the, in Turkey, they have the Turkish site. Yeah, but didn't they have a lot of these '60s and '70s Turkish records that they consider traditional, that still sound plenty weird to me.
2: Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah, really
1: unusual rhythms for us and unusual scales, but it's got electric, distorted guitar and all right, that. Right,
2: right.
1: So I played a lot of that and, and mixed with soul music. But uh, yeah, that it was a really weird. Um, Did they, they, they have turntables? The right
0: kind of turntables? Yeah, 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 stuff? yeah. They, they had the whole
1: thing, and and you know. Yeah, everything worked out all right. It just wasn't great, you know. It wasn't... Um, I did a lecture. Yeah.
0: Really? Like, you know. In like a gallery or a cafe or what? Yeah, that?
1: yeah, some bar. They asked me to do a lecture, and I was like, God... And I, and I really didn't have anything planned, and I kind of <laughs> bs my way around some subject, and I kind of came up with some closure at the end. And it worked out. Like, everyone Ooh. clapped. And i like, wow, I can't believe that worked.
0: Are you talk about DJing? Or?
1: No, no. I talked about soul music. There was some crazy i don't know how it worked out I, I, well, cool. I really felt like i had them lost for a long time right. and uh, it's sort of like when uh, uh do you see the new train spotting i have not oh,
0: no. I uh, is there a connection there
1: no we shouldn't even keep talking about that because it's okay. like it's people on the you know,
0: that's to you I'll be, yeah. I'll be, yeah yeah well we can save that for the very end yeah but it's um, nice to be in israel it's just the gigs weren't that great yeah, I mean, it's just such uh not a lot of people go. I mean, I booked, I actually booked Dame Funk in Tel Aviv in 2009. I booked him one European tour. We did that, but I mean, yeah, I mean, not a whole lot of people go there. So it's just, Well, it, it's, also now
1: a lot of people won't go there because of, a uh, right. You know, a lot of people are boycotting. Kind of, I can't decide. Of Back course. then it was different, but I couldn't decide if I go again right now. Because one thing is, is that I keep thinking. I'm not going to help the economy anywhere that much when I go there. <laughs> and, and the thing no, is, no, it's no. That I could, though, give people the voices of disenfranchised black Americans that didn't have human rights in the 60s, which I do think would that have a lot of irrelevant things to the Palestinian flag. Or in Russia, you know, I think,
2: yeah.
1: you know, I keep thinking of it in terms of, like, I got asked to do something, and I was like, well, I don't know, maybe I should. Maybe, maybe. how else how, am I going to help or hurt their culture by doing it? Because I definitely am not going to be bringing... I do realize once you're a Madonna or somebody, you're bringing yes. it like, a huge you're taking a huge part of their economy out when li- big live performances. Right, play. Yeah, like
0: when Radiohead cancels the show there, yeah, it makes yeah. sense. It makes but it a cultural little, impact. When a little
1: club act uh, doesn't go, you might be hurting the people by not giving them sure. access to something that might actually transform. That's them. very true.
0: Yeah. Um, did you sing? You sang on a Psyche TV record. I did sing on a psychic TV, right? Well, so all. what's let's start with that. There's some points I want to cover. You know, oh well, well, in our no,
1: well, okay. I I was uh, I was writing. I had a little fanzine, and uh, Gibby Haynes uh, of the Butthole Surfers. He, yeah. he was said, "Hey man, Genesis Peoriz wants you to interview." Him. I'm like, mm-hmm. "What? The Father Industrial Music wants me to interview?" Him. He's like, "Yeah, man. He really likes your stuff. He wants to talk to you, man." So, I'm like, all right, cool. Oh, yeah. He's like, yeah, come with me. I'm going to record with him. You can talk to him. So I go to wow. New Jersey with him, and uh, and you know we're hanging out. And Gibby is doing some vocal track, and so I'm like, Hey, Genesis. Uh, so I heard you want to interview me, and and he's like, Huh? I'm like, I heard you want to interview me. And he's like, I I don't know what you're talking about. For what? And I was like, I used to zine and everything. He's like, Well, I can. I just I don't know what you're talking about. You know. And I was like, "Oh, that's weird." And I, I asked Gibby, but he's like, "Yeah, man, I didn't want to go down there all alone, you know." And, uh,
0: <laughs> oh, he hoodwinked you.
1: Yeah. So, but he liked my voice. He's like, "Will you go in?" And he handed me a lyric sheet and had me sing because he thought I had an unusual voice. Wow. And I did, and he liked it, and they ended up calling me and asking me for my full name for the credits and everything. So. Oh wow. Yeah. So it ended up being pretty cool, but it was a really random thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, I stumbled across that, and I was like, "Oh man, I didn't even I had no idea."
1: I know it makes yeah. it look weirder and weirder all the yeah. time.
0: Nah, it's cool. I mean, that's I mean Psychic TV, of course, is such a legendary group. Oh no, no, Genesis is is an uncommon cultural force. Yeah, definitely. Um, what do, do, are you a fan of, Art Laboe? Yes. I think I feel like uh, there's like a connection of what the, the music that you play. I mean, Art LeBeau also is a cultural icon. He had a lot um, of variety. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of people in Los Angeles. See, I don't know, like when you go to L.A., when you do when you DJ or do soul claps in L.A., if it totally translates to the same people that Art LeBeau oh, reaches, you know, but I love some-
1: my crowd. there better than here. You, and, um, and I play at
0: theaters sometimes there and stuff like yeah. the soul club pretty big like they well LA has such a different appreciation and history with like classic soul music well the know? thing that and makes classics. LA is the, the, uh, the Chicano crowd man yeah
1: honestly the, the one thing that I really like about going to other countries in particular is this is one of the only countries in the world where people aren't into their heritage right you know and we really we have such a rich musical heritage and it's crazy America's always throwing with the past The thing that's really cool is that, um, first of all, I'm very interested in Chicano soul music. I love Brown Eyed Soul. I love uh, Chicano Garage. I love all those. I even had the Midnighters and Premiers play at the Soul Clap in LA. Nice. And so what I really like is, you know, the kids there in their 20s, they're still very into the 60s music. You know, they know all the they know the whole lineage and, and they come out and they know that I respect it. And. And it's just. And they also understand that a lot of the black records I play that aren't Chicano records, you know, are the records that those guys listen to and covered and do whatever. They understand all the connections and I deliberately make connections too. Like I'll play like Stevie Wonder's La 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 La, La, which is the best really early song of a little kid, you know. The Blendells is Chicano band covered it. So I know that if I play that in LA, it'll have meaning to these people that it won't have anywhere else in the world. And, and, uh, so I, Art LeBeau, I mean definitely, and a lot. Of L.A. record culture is amazing. Yeah. But I do think um, definitely, L.A.'s Chicano culture is the thing that for me makes it my favorite place probably to play. You know.
0: Nice. Um, Peerless Records too, isn't that a Mexican label? That was one of the many yeah. ones. Um, that you know. Are you pretty adept on the on the South American and Mexican uh, record labels for? garage and site? No, and I mean sold. obviously I have a lot of Peerless records and I have a lot I have a
1: lot of Mexican records, but like last week for Cinco de Mayo I played only Mexican records.
0: Nice. But but the thing no, is... Now it's is, a range of genres obviously, right? This yeah,
1: rock, you, know, rock and roll you know how it is. Peruvian yeah. records are totally different.
2: Yeah.
1: Peerless yeah. had a lot of them that they sold in LA but it's a Mexican label, but the right. big ones in LA like, is, like Pharaoh and Rampart yeah. owned by the same guy, and those are the ones that most of the records that the kids I play to down there, dude. And the funny thing is it's not just Chicano bands. I mean Barry White, I play this record by him, uh, his first record under his name is Tracy. And uh I, I play that one, you know, and that's that's on on Rampart, you know. Or maybe it's Fair. I think it's Rampart. Can't remember. How does it go but, but, over? Huh?
0: How does it go over? Great.
1: They everyone knows that record in LA. It's a it's an expensive record. It's a difficult to get, but they sure. uh, I mean like I so, said, people there know the history of it and, it. and to be honest, I really enjoy people that get excited with that kind of cultural history of it yeah. more than people that collect records and are like, oh my God, I can't believe that you own a copy of
2: right,
1: right. blah, blah, blah. Or, the, or you're playing some song that they know from a compilation. That's fine. But I really like it when people are into the cultural meaning of of the record. Oh, for sure. And, and I guess that my big hope in the second phase of my career or whatever this is, is that I can get more and more people of, of different age groups and, you know, cultural backgrounds to, to find the connections between yeah. what I'm doing. Because I'm laying these little bitty, I'm hiding these Easter eggs all around for everybody to pick up. Right, right. And, I, I, and, and once someone picks it up, I will expound on it live. Like I wait to see if anyone grabs something. And I, 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 never, I always improvise everything and I wait. And honestly, most of the time now, more than ever, I have to do art for art's sake because 10 years ago, I could do a cover of the Oogum Boogum song or the Oogum Boogum song, everybody knows it. Now, kids don't know it as much.
0: Yeah, the paradigm is shifting.
1: However, they're more likely to know some incredibly rare record, but that mid-grade kind of thing where you make references, where you speak to people, it's hard to speak to people. They all know Twist and Shout and Shout and Willy Bully and a few of these songs. Right. But, you know, honestly, you know, you can't just reference like the top 50 songs of all time. It used to be that the vocabulary of your average person that would go out would would be many times greater. And now that it's less, it's in a way made me a better DJ because I have to just play really good music since I right. can't deal with familiarity. Right, right. But I I wish I wish that I could get more references. But that's to said that what gets good is like I'll be in New Orleans Saturday. And even though New Orleans loves the hits. <laughs> They love hearing their hits over and over again. There is something about, I have a lot of these songs by different singers that people don't know there. Like I, I have a couple really rare, like Professor Longhair and nice. Hugh Smith records and stuff. So you can kind of tell that it's them, but it's not a song that you hear.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and I would love to, to draw that little connection where people will, oh, and I still know, think about it, when you play an unknown James Brown song, an unknown I Can'tina song or something, it's kind of great, it's almost like you played a hit because people, they hear Tina Turner's voice and they know, oh, that's Tina, there's not, like that thing I was saying about the elevators. Like yeah. People know the 13th floor elevators right away, people know Tina Turner's voice right away. Right. And so I feel like you still, you need these little touch tones to, to speak to people. You can't just play people random, unusual things all night. You can, but you need to do it in a way where uh, they can connect on some level and relate to you yeah you have to build towards it yeah yeah you can't just hit him over the head over
0: and over um, Well, and
1: just speak to them they, like if i if i speak to you in a foreign language all night like he has a beautiful voice but once you hear a, you know i don't know when you watch a spanish tv station like right. <laughs> blah 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 donald trump then you're like okay they're talking about donald trump yeah you know what i mean and it gives a form of reference you start listening to the other words in spanish that you happen to know you think, oh, they don't like Donald Trump. Yeah.
0: You start understanding the inflection a little bit more Yeah, shit. yeah. Um, I'd love to just, for a sec, talk about Norton Records, too, because that's a big part of your world, too, I feel like, too, because of the records that they've re-released and exhumed and stuff, but also because you were you guys were friends. Too.
1: Well, my compilations, too. Uh,
0: yeah. Five oh, on Norton Records, right? Yeah. yeah. So well, how did you guys first connect? I mean, what's the story like? Well,
1: we first connected is they connected with me because i'm a music fan and in the 90s i really got it i I read a review of one of my bands with a guy one of the comparisons was that i I played like a mixture of hazel atkins and i don't remember what or the other thing but i was like who's hazel atkins
0: right i have that record They
1: and i worked at the record store too and they were like you don't know hazel atkins no so i i it was like 1991 or something i got into hazel atkins i was like 19 Wow. And, I, and that's when I first had a Norton record and they had these uh great Link Ray things coming out and I and I I don't know, I just kinda kept up with them over time. When I started DJing Norton and their forty fives before I and their and their L P comps before I had forty fives were you know, I remember getting the uh Mighty Hannibal record, the Gino Washington record, the King Coleman record, and the early soul claps and stuff before I fully gotten to 45s. I tried to just buy the 45s of those records that were on there and stuff because I was like, whoa. I didn't know anything about stuff and that's really good stuff. And so, but you know, Norton wasn't known for their soul. They only had a few soul records. They're mostly known for their, uh, you know, early rock and roll garage. And and in a lot of ways, I mean, like, you know, I, I buy their little pretty things, seven inches. And, you know, every one of those EPs, like every song's amazing. And if you're a DJ, a lot of it's pretty danceable. You know, and it,
2: sure. those
1: Link Ray ones, you know, every one of them, the Sonics and Wheelers, every one is like the best record you ever heard. It's not like we're all dealing with this medium kind of time now. We're like, oh, you know, people are digging up old stuff that's like, well, here's something that you've never heard. And right. all these kids now know all this unknown stuff that's unknown because it's kind of not that great, maybe okay here and there yeah but everything those guys put out you could be guaranteed would be amazing so like i just bought all their stuff and uh you know once i met them i started realizing that they're just really cool people and uh, you know they uh they started djing here and there and so i started inviting them every now and then when i have those guest nights So i'd be like have them come out and they were always some of the most fun guests that i ever had and then uh you know, years and years went by, and I just, you know, get they invite me over for Billy always had his birthday party on New year's day, and cool. you know, I don't I end up going over there. And when I in 2008, I had a, I left all, I had this giant homemade crate that that bought this guy made this huge crate that had three bars It hold like over 400 records,
2: mm-hmm. and It had
1: my entire pretty much 45 playing out collection like my regular rotation. I left it in the back of a cab.
0: Oh my god. And
1: Norton was so great cuz I went over there and they they really helped me like get a lot of records and they and they you know a lot of them had to get reissues or whatever but you know they're cheap and all that. I don't play any reissue ever anymore. I play only original records and stuff but uh, back then like I relied on that stuff and uh like they totally took care of me and uh then they had a you know I don't know we just always ended up hanging out and being having similar interests and then they had um when I had my accident, they were really, they did benefits for me. And well, yeah, Billy,
0: when we did the one at Brooklyn Bowl, you know, Billy was, uh, mm. I reached out to him and was able to, I was very happy because you guys had such a close personal relationship too and they were a part of that.
1: Yeah, know. no. So so that, were, and then, then they had their flood, Yeah. you know, I was over at their house uh, cleaning yeah, records and doing benefits and doing, and that was the hugest, I, anyone here that didn't know what happened the worst thing ever. They had this giant warehouse like basically a lifetime of work in this warehouse and the whole thing got flooded and basically our job, the salt water was ruining all the records so we had to clean all their friends. We all came there and like cleaned all the records. This
0: this was during Sandy, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that was really bad and then Uh Billy got really sick after that and uh, there's been a lot of stuff. But you know, when they asked me to do a compilation it's so funny. Billy had this weird idea where uh, you know these Mad Mike combinations. I don't know if you have ever seen it. Mad Mike's this no, I'm not familiar Pittsburgh DJ who is their favorite DJ and probably mine. And he's this guy changed the world. And you should one day read the liner notes on his first album. It'll change the way you look. This guy thinks like me or like any of us. Like but in the early '60s, like wow, this guy in Pittsburgh had you know, thousands of people at his parties. But he don't. He did cover ups for anyone else. He played all odd tracks. He had unusual taste, the coolest. And he always had a really crude portrait of himself on the cover. And Billy was like, I want to do a compilation for you like that. And I, the odd thing is I had already been so weird that my odd friendships with like Sacred Bones and, you know, and, and Mike Sniper and all that, you know, like they had asked me about doing comps. And Caleb and I were loosely working on a Soul Clap comp, but not really working on it at all. It wasn't really happening. And, uh, so I told Billy, I was like, well... You, I know y'all don't do soul much, but if you want to do a soul one, we're kind of working on that. And then, so he's like, "Yeah, that'd be great." And so I give him this list, and can't use any of it because I want my compilation to be democratic. Like I want Little Richard on there, and
0: well, yeah, licensing some of that stuff might be a little tricky. Yeah,
1: I didn't know how hard all that was. I was really ignorant. I never put out a compilation. I, mean, yeah. I had a Burger Tape or whatever. I didn't right. know anything.
0: So, well, that's like a mixtape though. Right? Yeah. yeah.
1: So I didn't know anything. So I, <laughs> I, you know. We kept going back and forth That turn, out I was in Chicago and I, I really wanted to master the record myself because that was important that it sound like 45s. I wanted some kid who DJs to buy the record and put it on at his, because I remember playing those comps at my gigs and they're always quiet and, whatever, and it sound like these 45s. Right. Maybe where could they even cheat on the radio or do, you know, and where someone who went to the party could take it home and it sounds like the party. Sure. So we're doing it in Chicago and going back and forth. And I literally have the crate of records that I'm playing with in Chicago. And I'm still emailing him back and forth while we're doing one and two. Hmm. Over like, which what stays and goes, so side two of volume two is stuff we kind of agreed upon in the last minute. Hmm. Because we won't, it was just what I had. And in yeah. a way, it was so authentic. And that like, in a lot of these compilations, people wait their whole life and put their best most and me, I put what I had that weekend on there, <laughs> and uh, that works, yeah. And he was very present in the first two, and then he got really sick. So, the next two, um, I mean, he approved all the tracks and went through it, but I, I did the covers myself on that. I, I had Lenny K write the liner notes on one of them, oh, I did nice. the liner notes on the other one. I worked out the, the front and back, and then the, the last one, he was really, really sick. So, so we just sort of um. I, I was kind of like holding off because i just didn't think he was really eager to put out records because i was right. one of the only things that could come out and and he, he just uh i was just worried i didn't know you know because i didn't know if he'd be able to but to fully oversee it but he was still sharp uh in his own like he'd have really lucid moments and uh
0: so that was like one of the last things that he did right like well, it might have been one of the last ones when he was
1: alive. They just had a Dion record come out this week. Can you believe it? They no. And they were working on it then. And he was... One of the things later in his life that he was thrilled about was that Dion agreed... This amazing recordings in the mid-60s, like 65, wow. that kind of Dylan-influenced recordings that he never wanted out. And he decided oh, wow. that now's the time and... Sadly, it had to come out after Billy died, but he was working on it when he died. And Miriam, you know, she did a great job, and she introduced me to Dion at that little really? party. And uh, how she, was that? It was great, and she's doing a great job, and uh, yeah. But Billy, you know, the Billy I have to say before we move on, like I miss him all the time. I think of him like Obi Wan Kenobi behind me at the DJ booth. Like I know what things about me he doesn't like, <laughs> right. and I feel him sometimes. Going no, Jonathan, and I, and I, feel, I feel like going. I play. This one song every Friday just to think of him. What Betty Lou got a new tattoo by the Creeps, which is like a uh, Fort Worth record. Wow! And because um, I always think he used to love it, and he used to sing it in the the A bones. So I always think of him smiling and singing that song. And oh, yeah. uh, he also, I gotta say, man, when he when Billy passed on, it became very apparent to me not just like. I was trying to write this thing for Vice Survivor and mean, I didn't even get it like complete. Like it, They put out so much stuff. Norton Records did. Hundreds and hundreds of records, and the fact that it was so good. And that it, and when he died, you just realized at the funeral how much he changed your life. I mean, he had Roy Loney, the Flaming Grooves, his hero, singing Teenage Head back oh, by Daddy yeah. Long Legs in the, the thing, and you're just looking around you, and it's just like. All the people you ever respected of all time are all there, and uh, I don't know, he he just really made a difference. Well, Miriam is continuing and doing a great job, and she's putting out, you know, she's putting out, she has Kicks books, too. Oh, nice. Which, you know, they had a zine called Kicks, and now yeah. so she puts out, put out a Sun Ra books. she put out, she wrote that Bobby Fuller book that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. So she's keeping the the, the thing really swinging, and uh,
0: I don't know, really, yeah. I, I just I have so much respect for that guy and for the label. And just you know, aesthetically, and they just have such a great sort of angle musically. You know,
2: no,
1: um, I'm shocked that they gave me comps. They know, you know, my, Mad yeah. Mike was the only guy with DJ that had comps before. Like he, wow, so he, you're in good company. They had this guy from the '60s. Yeah, he's been dead forever. Like yeah. he, he was like they anthologized a lot of his you know hits, and then. For me to do it, I can't believe it. I'm like, because you know, like I said, those people are, yeah, the, they're the top. And you know, the thing is, really, when I look at the pile of stuff, really, man, they're giants.
2: Yeah,
1: they make all this other stuff that I keep buying that keeps coming out. And I hate to say but it, make, it makes these people look small and trivial.
2: <laughs> because seriously,
1: yeah. like we're now we're all grasping for like the the last few scraps of things that aren't out there and all that and in the compilation up. world and reissues and it. Their stuff, even if it's unknown or known, it's always just,
2: yeah,
0: the top. Yeah, people should go back and and learn if they don't know that catalog. Like, yeah. revisit it.
1: No, they're aiming for the pinnacle, not for like somewhere in the middle. That
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, uh, here's something else we don't know.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Well, I wanted to see. I mean, there's obviously we could talk for a lot longer. I mean, I don't want to hold you too much longer because uh, you have a gig tonight, right? Uh, yeah, actually,
1: yeah, bring in a, a cool soul guy in named Don Bryant. Oh, what's his story?
0: Uh, he's a Memphis
1: guy, and uh, he started in the late 60s, or I mean late 50s with Willie Mitchell and all that, and then by the later 60s, he had his own records and everything, and he, you hear him singing on Willie Mitchell's That Drive and Beat and a lot of these mm. records he's uncredited on. He has a record I played, do the Mustang. He has some really great covers. He had one of the great voices in soul music, and also a writer, like he wrote... Uh, you know, Can't Stand the Rain by M. Peebles, Nickel right. and Nail by O.V. Wright, uh, like all these, you know, 99 pounds by M. Peebles. Like, he wrote a lot of great cool. stuff, too, and uh, his voice is still there, and he has, like, Fat Possum record coming out this Oh, week. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. We yeah. were talking about at the beginning of
1: the conversation. Yeah, and he's back by the bokies who are the craziest... The, old, the cream of the crop of Memphis studio musicians that you hear on all those cool old records. So tonight's gig
0: is you're just playing Memphis records, right? Records. That yeah,
1: I'm, I'm not, I don't even know, I'm not playing many records. I got a bunch of DJs together, I mostly did it oh, okay.
0: for, um, I don't care about the,
1: one of the DJ jobs is, uh, I'm still a promoter as much as I'm a DJ, I hate right. that word because it's like a, no one wants to be a promoter, but. You know, I, I helped put together the flyer and I put my friends putting on the thing and, and I, I decided to co-host it with and put my name on it and make it where more people find out about it. And I got some extra DJs cool. I mean, it's nice to have us there, but we're only there to tell people about it and create some ambiance. But it's I mean, I will be playing only Memphis music, but it's mostly we're there for advocacy. Cool. Then and, and hoping nice. that this guy, 75 years old, backed by this great band, doesn't have one of those embarrassing tuesdays that new york is so known for <laughs> you know and you know you know how it is it's the kind of thing where I he'll do. die and then everyone will be like oh
0: wish we went yeah so uh and how are you doing otherwise are you good i mean you're touring still like pretty constantly right you're playing constantly right? actually
1: i slide down a lot after the the accident i do i do like um i do once a week out of town Okay. Which sounds crazy, that's, that's but good. but basically I just I don't go on tour anymore except sometimes in Europe and I do, so every Saturday I do a soul clap in a different city and on Friday I do the uh, shaking all over in New York. Oh, nice. And then before the you were be doing
0: in. lots of you do one flying in after another after another after another, right? Like you were really pounding it. on the Yeah, rug.
1: like that week I got run over. I I was in, uh, I was in New York and then the next night Miami and the next night. Uh, San Francisco and I went to LA and then Portland. Wow. And yeah. then next night I was supposed to go back to New York and then to Montreal next night. So at this oh, point wow. like I have a lot easier schedule and uh on the summer Sundays I play on a rooftop in Bushwick. Oh cool. My friends play our wicked lady and uh
2: Oh yeah.
1: Play soul on a roof.
0: You that's know? what's up. Yeah, classic New York summer, Brooklyn summer. Yeah,
1: break out the boogaloos. Yeah. The reggae versions of soul music and you know, it's a nice feeling. Yeah,
0: that's cool. Um I mean I don't. I you know coming into this, I was. um, I don't. I don't know if it was necessary or not. But I mean, and I know you've talked about this before. We we don't have to talk about that accident. But I do feel like we there is something where we have a weird connection to it uh, that I feel like I'd like to talk about for a second. Well, we both had. Yeah, I mean, very traumatic Mm. hospital experiences, uh, near death experiences uh, that we share in common but also the the day of your accident uh somehow uh, inexplicably um i was the first person that was called by the emt you know and uh yeah and i don't know if you knew that or not but i I was sitting next to michelle cable at the panache office on uh on um graham avenue and uh, which has since closed and moved but uh um, and I got a call on my cell phone uh, from an unlisted five, uh, 503 number, which I think that's the area code in Portland, Oregon. Pretty sure. Yeah, five zero three. Yeah. yeah. I lived there for two years. Oh, right, that's,
1: is that New Orleans or 504, 504 503, 503,
0: 503, 503. Well, it was from Por- I was. I got a call from Portland, and I picked it up, and they were like, "Hi, are you Peter uh, uh Yeah. Um, I thought it was a cold call from a promoter. I just right. that's that was the that was happening. Why would a they lot- call you? Well, this is what I'm trying to figure out by talking to you right now about it. And uh, they said, do you know Jonathan Tobin? I, um, uh, and I said, yeah. Is he supposed to be in Portland, Oregon tonight? And I thought for sure this was some kind of promoter or something. I'm like, well, I mean, let me look up on the website because I guess he's on tour right now. I didn't book the shows. You know, that was the, that was the language I was using when I was talking to them. Right. So I was like looking on our calendar um, and I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, he, he's supposed to play there tonight. Still thinking it was like someone trying to get on the guest list or some work related right, thing. Right. And like, well, he's been in a big accident, and I'm trying to figure out a way to get in touch with his family. And I, at that moment, I was like, like you know, my heart sunk. Um, and uh, I was, we were working in a full office of people. And I looked over to Michelle, and I said, um, well, yeah, he's there. He's he's supposed to be there. He's definitely scheduled to perform there. And then I said, Michelle, listen, we got to – let me go talk to you out in the backyard real quick, because she had the backyard yeah, in right, right. I didn't want to talk with a bunch of the interns and assistants around because it right. seemed very um, serious. Right. And then at that point, then, we, then they described to both of us, um, I, I believe on the phone, that uh, – sort of what had happened they couldn't really say it was like an emt guy or someone that was there on the scene or come to the scene and then at that point i said michelle listen like you know you should try to find his parents talk to his parents you know or or get in touch with someone because um we're just homies i wasn't your booking agent nor did i like know where you were coming from or where you're supposed to go or and uh and I still don't really know why they, how they, why they called me. Obviously, you know, I mean, we have, I have your number. We have each other's numbers, but it's not like we had been like texting or talking like the no, day before. No, not, yeah, my phone wouldn't have been. Uh, I don't get. I think either you. they, yeah, right, yeah. I guess the phone wasn't accessible. They might have looked on our website basically and saw, okay, here's a guy, here's a guy's number because right. we had our cell phones on the Maybe contact like panache exactly and saw your name. Yeah. yeah. And then that's when we just got into like, you know, um, um, try to figure out mode, you know, and from that moment, Michelle went one way and I went the other. And then we start, as we started figuring out what the fuck was going on, um, you know, in that, in that day, which was in the summer, it was a summer, summer, or July or September, I think it was December. December, December in 2011. It, it, it yeah. was the, it was wintertime. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and then not that long after, I mean, it might've been less than 24 hours because it started, it sound once I, once we really heard what was, it sounded so dire at the, in that moment, just because your imagination starts to like whirl around in your mind that uh, then I reached out to Brooklyn Bowl and started figuring out a way to like, you know, we should try to figure out something right now because this dude doesn't have insurance and he's out there. I don't know. That's, I'm, now I'm kind of reliving it all. I haven't thought about it in a minute. And I don't mean to, to, oh, no, to, no. to, to drudge that all up, you know, but it's something weird where the I man, they called me and I picked it up and I thought it was a cold call from a promoter or something. And we had this conversation and then me and Michelle talked and we looked at each other and we're both had this like, like moment, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh I'm just glad that we can do this and we can chat about records and oh, random yeah, shit yeah. and uh, that we're both still here and that 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 we were able to bring people together cuz uh that Brooklyn Bowl show was, you know, I started I poured myself into that. That was well, so nice, man. Oh, it's all it's no it's no big deal. I mean, really got to think like the yeah yeah yeahs and the strokes you know the strokes played a big part in that too even though they didn't perform um i don't know if you knew that or not but uh and then of course uh john spencer and Gibby and uh, that I mean, guy saw, that was in kids
1: afterwards but yeah i wasn't i wasn't when that happened i wasn't uh,
0: conscious well, right? of course not no i know i mean it was it was le- okay. i mean the, the the benefit itself was less than a week later you know okay. so um but it was a magical time. I was there from start to finish. And I got on stage and made a fucking speech just like I'm doing right now, you know, and um, about bringing people together and it, like and and it was it was an amazing turnout and so many cool artists, you know, TV on the radio and, and Ryan Sawyer and and uh, a bunch of band Habibi, you know, and like uh, and and Billy, uh, you know, DJ, you got his ass out, you know, so. And the people from, Adam from Brooklyn Bowl and so on and so forth. So, uh, and Karen from Panache. So, yeah, it was just a good thing. And I'm glad that you're well. And that was like such a, you know, unreal, unbelievable experience for everybody around you, obviously. Right? I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm glad I wasn't, I wasn't aware.
0: (laughs) So it was like, did you just wake up a week later and you're like, what happened? No, Uh, it was like a month later.
1: I didn't know anything. It took me a long time to figure it out. I still don't think I've dealt with it really, you know, I think my big job was to get past it as quick as I could. Sure. And I think I'll deal with it like in five years or something.
0: Yeah, you deal with it when you feel like it. (laughs) Listen, when when my kidneys failed and I was in the hospital for three weeks, man, like, I don't like thinking about... What the what led up to it? Because I was on tour with a band. I was in Brazil with a rock rock and roll band. That I booked. Oh, really?
1: That's when it, when, it, when yeah, you know, that's when it, when it happened. Oh, man.
0: And I don't like thinking about that period of time because it bums me out. Because it's just a, it's a huge bummer. Well,
1: um, that's the funniest thing. Is that, that you know that's one thing I try to. I mean, I'm. It's been years now, but for a while I yeah. really had to explain everybody like look this is not what i want particularly like within a year after it happened yeah i did not i I, seriously i hired a guy to help tell everybody that i didn't want to talk
0: about i (laughs) I understand it's that's a trauma you know like like yeah it just gets to be
1: where yeah well you know what i mean you know you never want to remember the worst stuff like all the time over time you get older even now like you know i keep trying to get to where you can laugh at it or whatever oh yeah that that was uncommon. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Unique.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> because you know, I mean there's no there's no way to that's why that's why the, the good lord gives us humor. Yeah, that, right. the, you know, all this bad stuff happens to everybody all the time and you have to make that's sense true. of it and you have to figure out a way to not dwell on it and move into uh you know what I mean? Oh yeah. I keep thinking like like I look at pets or <laughs> you whatever know, animals. You know what I mean uh, they keep it
0: moving pretty. I good. think
1: the problem with humans is that, that we're animals, but we keep we tend to dwell on the worst things that happen to us, oh, yeah, you know and all the time and even if we don't like me, I mean, you know it's in there, and then that's bad too like
0: yeah, well, you, you make you figure it out the way that works for you i mean it's it, yeah, I mean that's all we can do, you know, but I mean the fact that you're that you're you know embraced um your talents, and brought like brought the, the DJing into this whole world that you kind of created, which is it's dope, man. It's cool. And, no, I keep uh, trying. I keep trying. Yeah. Well, that's all it can do. No, to I really. think I got
1: a lot better after all that, too, because, I mean, honestly, I had to relearn it again. And every time you start over, you know, you get more of a sense of where you're at. And yeah. it gave me a break, too, which yes. I guess. Before all that, I didn't really... That's the. I wasn't really aware of what I was doing, you know. Yeah. I was just reacting, and right. all that time off made me think. Well, what do I? Yeah. It's so weird when you haven't DJed for many months and you don't right. know what you're supposed to do, and they're like, "All oh, right, now play." And you're like, "Oh, right. so what do I do?"
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Get some records.
0: Yeah, I mean, being in the hospital and going through tra- trauma is. A break like no other, you know, yeah. especially when you get to the other side and you come come home. And yeah,
1: it's, you you don't have any choice but to reevaluate yourself and yeah, how you do things.
0: Yeah, and you got and like, every part of your life. Absolutely, yeah, and you have great people around you too. You have a lot of people that love you too.
1: Right, I looked out. I looked out with that.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate um, you coming here and taking to the time, theater? It was fun. And by the way, you look great. Thanks, man. Like, you don't look like some guy that was sick either. <laughs> yeah, I think we're doing pretty good. Yeah. yeah, I've had a couple. This July will be my two-year anniversary of my transplant. So, and then it'll be 2014 is when my kidneys failed. So, you know, you just time keeps going. Oh, no, man. No one can see you. You're you're
1: tan. You're healthy. <laughs> you got. You look. You look. You look amazing. Thanks, man.
0: So do you. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thank you. Wow, that was great. I want to thank my guest, Jonathan Tobin, JT, for taking the time to come over and chat with me. What a guy. And it was a great, great conversation. I want to thank you guys for listening to another episode of The House List. Please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Feel free to repost it. I'm at uh, Twitter at HouselessPod. So retweet it if you see it. And if you have a website or a blog or you just want to pass it along to a group of friends, word of mouth style, I appreciate that. Definitely do it. There's a lot of great episodes before this, too. Feel free to go peruse and check those out as well. Again, this episode was sponsored by House of Marley. The House List and House of Marley have teamed up to give away one of their incredible, sustainably made, bamboo stir it up turntables. So if you're a DJ or a record collector, if you got into it because of Jonathan Tobin, so you're all about soul and funk 45s, or if you are a lifer like me that has been buying and collecting records and DJing for the better part of the last 20 to 25 years or longer, then all you got to do is, is email me at the houseless podcast at Gmail. That's the houseless podcast at Gmail with the subject line Stir It Up. And one lucky guy or gal is going to get picked out of random and be sent this amazing, brand new, fresh out the box, sustainably made Stir It Up turntable. You can see pics at the House of Marley Instagram, which is just House of Marley, or go to houseofmarley.com backslash turntable and check this out. It's dope. I'm telling you, man. I've seen it. And uh, you can put your USB cable in it. You can digitize vinyl off of it. You can play 45s. You can play 33s, you know. Um, You can run it through any House of Marley speaker Uh, It's got a built-in headphone jack. It comes with an Audio-Technica cartridge that's replaceable. Solid steel tone arm. I mean, it's the real deal, I'm telling you. So you have until June 1st, people, to write me and try to win this very special promo uh, that I'm doing with the good people at House of Marley. So for all my listeners at the Houseless Podcast, hit me up try to get that turntable and you'll get it sometime, uh, at the top of June and next episode, I'll be in Budapest. So that's going to be great and amazing all my family lives there. I'm going to go meet my dad and we're going to hang out in Budapest and hopefully I'll interview a couple really cool upcoming artists, uh, in that scene because it's an amazing one and I'm trying to help document it. So thanks again so much for listening y'all and I will catch you next time. See ya.